Mr. Doe, going on in your country right now in Vietnam is 4,000 little kids who are in quarantine camps away from their parents because of this fake scamdemic. And you come to my country and you act like one of these communist parasites, I ask you to go the f*** back to Vietnam. Decades since crowds rallied for Vincent Chen, his memory continues to fuel a movement in Detroit. It's an emotional one for Michigan State Senator Stephanie Chang. You got pretty emotional. So what was behind those tears up there? You know, I... It's an emotional time for a lot of people, I think, because, you know, we've been through a lot these past two years in this pandemic. Um, a lot of people have lost so many people. Uh, we've also seen so much hate. We cannot talk about hate crimes and senseless killings today without talking about Vincent Chin. At the intersection of Peterborough and Cass Avenue, elected and community leaders gathered to remember the 40th anniversary of Vincent Chin's death. We know that Vincent Chin's murder was fueled by anti-Asian hate, and that is what is so rampant today. But Vincent Chin's legacy was so much more than that. In 1982, two white auto workers brutally murdered Vincent Chin, a Chinese-American man, with a baseball bat outside of a bar. Prosecutors said the men believed the rising Japanese auto industry stole American jobs. Neither man served prison time, which sparked a flashpoint to end hate against Asian Americans. Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan followed the case when he was in law school. And it was a deep lesson to everybody, something that we're still learning to this day, that our criminal justice system behaves differently depending on the color of your skin. Though times have changed, there's still a rallying cry to end Asian hate. The pandemic sparked a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes nationally. More than 4,600 hate incidents happened in 2020, Nearly 6,300 happened in 2021. Half of the almost 11,000 incidents happened in public spaces. Most were in public streets. Community leaders hope by remembering Vincent Chin, Detroit can once again lead the way in the movement against anti-Asian hate. It's so clear, you know, that my daughters and everyone else's children deserve to learn all of our history. Um, and so for me, it is an emotional thing because I want the best possible future for my daughters and I don't want it to be another 40 years, you know, to, to finally see the kind of world that they deserve. Next month, there will be several events for the remembrance and rededication of the 40th anniversary of Vincent Chen's death. There are also plans to take this artwork and make it a mural on this side of the building. In Detroit's Chinatown, I'm Brandon Hudson, Fox 2 News. If you were to drive down West Adams Boulevard, south of the 10, just past Culver City, you'd see the typical signs of a neighborhood in transition. There are old liquor stores, empty lots, even some burn scars left over from the 1992 uprisings. But there is also a new boutique hotel. There's a pasta bar, some sleek apartment buildings under construction, a Mediterranean restaurant, the early signs of gentrification. However, all of these newly developed properties are owned by just one real estate firm, LA's CIM Group. The firm is working on at least 40 properties in the neighborhood right now, as it looks to single-handedly redevelop West Adams into a trendy destination. Some longtime residents of this historically Black and Latino neighborhood feel they do not fit in to CIM's vision. Joining me to talk about this is Peter Waldman. He's an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Business Week magazine, and he wrote about what's happening in West Adams. Welcome. Thanks, Madeline. 
Well, tell us about CIM. It's named. It's uh, it's led by a guy named Shaul Kuba, and he's really the force behind this. Who is he? So Shaul Kuba came over to the United States from Israel uh, in the mid '80s. Uh, he came with a friend and fellow paratrooper after they both fought in the Lebanon-Israel War, and they settled in Los Angeles and were part of a great number of young Israelis um, in the building trades. And they turned out to be very successful at it, and one thing led to another over several years, and they became um, the leaders of a very large company with a lot of pension fund investments and other uh, sources of money, and they manage and develop some $30 billion of real estate assets all over the country, uh, and they're based right there in Los Angeles. Wow. And it's not just that they're building these new structures. They're actually orchestrating who goes in them, right, to sort of like creating a neighborhood, not just, just building buildings, but designing what these neighborhoods will look and feel like, like who's going to be in there, what kinds of businesses. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time with Shao Kuba, who, by the way, is a charismatic guy. And he, I think, fancies himself as kind of a curator uh, as much as a developer. He chooses and remodels and refurbishes and designs uh, in ways that are very creative and that um, tend to attract a lot of young creative types uh, with expendable income who can pay for multi-thousand-dollar-per-month apartments uh, in edgy places like West Adams. Hmm. All right, so what does that mean for the people living there? This sounds like a typical tale of gentrification where things get more expensive and people who rent there and who've been there for maybe generations can't afford to live in their own neighborhoods anymore. Yeah, I think the piece I set out to do in in Bloomberg Business Week um, shows the nuances of what we call gentrification, which I believe is a, a really loaded word and means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, I call it transformation or remaking, um, or as they say in real estate, they call it placemaking. Uh, Shaul Kuba is a kind of master placemaker. He turns something that didn't attract a lot of investment uh, into something that does, and that involves displacement. Not sort of with the bulldozer in most cases, because 25 of the 40 parcels that CIM Group is working on are adaptive reuse. So so Shao Kuba uh, and the strategy there is all about preserving some of the quirkier industrial places and, and turning, let's say, this... Um, tire repair place uh, into a Mislala Middle Eastern Foods on West Adams, and they serve wonderful Middle Eastern food, and a lot of people like that, but uh, it's very different than it used to be. So what happens to the guy who repaired tires? Where does he go? So uh, in the story is a long um, vignette about a, uh, a man who owns a liquor store on... West Adams. Uh, It's called Holiday Liquors. And uh, this person uh, is an immigrant from Sierra Leone in Africa, has been in the United States for about 30 years and done very well um, both with liquor stores, but also as a home flipper himself. He fancies himself as a 
developer, and he's acquired two and now three parcels, uh, including the liquor store. And Shao Kuba and CIM Group ha- has now offered him many millions of dollars twice for his properties, and he's rejected Shao Kuba. And um, according to this gentleman, um, whose name is Mr. Abdul Sharif, he's been fighting and has had all kinds of troubles with the city attorney since rejecting CIM Group's offer. So he's had troubles with the city attorney. That's Mike Fewer, who happens to be running for mayor. What do you mean by that? So Fewer has been pretty aggressive for several years with something called nuisance abatement actions. And basically, um, if a policeman swears out an affidavit and says a landlord is allowing drug dealing or is indulging or somehow tolerating gang activity, uh, they can force this landlord uh, to do all kinds of things. So in the case of Abdul Sharif and Holiday Liquors on West Adams, there's a, 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 a nuisance abatement injunction demanding all kinds of actions like putting up video equipment and hiring security guards and not selling single receptacles of alcohol, all kinds of things uh, that has made his business very uncompetitive with other liquor stores in that very area, uh, who, by the way, also have crime problems, but don't face any of these um, judicially imposed restrictions. So is he saying that because he rejected Cuba's offer to sell out, Cuba then got the city attorney to harass him? Yes, that is exactly the allegation. What does Cuba say about that? Cuba says he has nothing to do with um, Sharif's legal problems. And I'll note that is where the Cento Pasta Bar is located that Cuba just um, built for um, a pop-up Italian chef in Los Angeles. Uh, At the same time, they had to throw someone out of the building. They paid that person off $9,000. It happened to be a a disabled veteran in his 70s who now lives part-time out of his car. But that's the kind of thing and the kinds of subtleties. People are enjoying this Italian restaurant, and this gentleman who lived there is is out of luck. So who wins in this this battle? Uh, Do you put your money on Cuba? The battle between Abdul Sharif and Holiday Liquor and CIM Group is pretty weighted toward not so much CIM Group because they're not the actual uh, party there at play, but the city of Los Angeles and Mike Feuer and the city attorney. But let me add that Abdul Sharif uh, is a pretty feisty immigrant as well, um, just <laughs> like Shao Kuba. And he isn't giving up. He's appealing the judicial injunction against holiday liquor. And he's also pursuing his own plans to develop a mixed-use, very CIM-style apartment uh, retail complex right there on West Adams. So we'll see whether he can sort of build a rival real estate empire to CIM group right there in the middle of West Adams. Peter Waldman, investigative reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek magazine, where you can read his story on West Adams and all of the development that's happening there. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you.
California is drying up. We are in a historic drought and we'll face unprecedented restrictions here in Southern California beginning next month. In the Central Valley, some residents are used to having little water. It's been that way for decades. And these are mainly poor black and Latino families whose communities were not allowed to use water from nearby cities. Well, they're fighting back now. David Bacon wrote about the unequal access to water for the nation, and he joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great to have you. Well, first, help us understand who are the people in these communities? How many people live in what are being called the colonias? Well, Bill Manning, who just recently got termed out as the Speaker of the Assembly, told me that there are about a million Californians who live in 130 communities across the state who are living in um, what I guess you would call communities of excluded people. And these are communities that generally were established by African-Americans who came up from the South um, in two waves, the first one right after World War I and the second one right after World War II. Um, And when people came up from the South, they faced racial exclusion um, by the cities in uh, the Central Valley, every cities from Fresno or Visalia or Tulare. Here you have people who were working the cotton as sharecroppers in the South and who came up to California when cotton was a big crop in the valley here. And because they couldn't live in towns like Tulare, for instance, they set up settlements on the periphery of those um, cities. So you have a community like Matheny Tract, which was set up on the outskirts of Tulare, or you have one called Lanier that was set on set up on the outskirts of Riverdale. And these were communities that, of exclusion, people who were not able to buy property. And as a result, the cities really that had excluded them did not provide any services. There was no water, there were no sewer services, Um, So really, people had to find all these things for themselves. And that's the origin of the water crisis in these tiny communities today. And are these tiny communities still mainly African-American? There are still a very significant number of African-American people that live in some of these communities. And some of them, like Teveston, for instance, are still very much a majority African-American community. But the number of African-Americans living in those communities has has gone down and um, they've become communities where primarily uh, people, the people who live there are farm workers, Mexican farm workers. So Mexican farm workers are in some ways um, inheriting the conditions that were imposed on African-American people when those communities were first started. So I understand that they were excluded from the cities in terms of providing services, but why doesn't the county then step in and provide these services? Well, that's a very good question. Why didn't the counties do that? I think that the counties, um, here we're talking about, you know, who has power really and who doesn't. And these exclusions um, by the cities were done by those um, land interests, primarily growers, but the people who really controlled the land in in the cities and the counties. And and they were also the powers that be, not just on the city council of a city like Tulare, but on the board of supervisors of the county of Tulare. It was really the same group of people who were responsible for writing those exclusions. So the counties were really not not about to undo what the cities 
were doing because really it was the same group of people who were responsible for the exclusions mm-hmm. in both air, in both levels. And so how do they get their water and how do they take care of their sewage? People had the money to only dig relatively shallow wells. And so when people dug those shallow wells, um, the water that they were pulling up was already contaminated by the chemicals that were in the soil. And then, of course, um, these are communities that are surrounded by fields. And so what the growers were doing to make the land productive for themselves, in other words, they were using fertilizers and they were using pesticides, um, those chemicals also wound up in the water table. And so people were pulling up out of these shallow wells um, water that was already contaminated. Um, But as the years went on, um, the water level in the Central Valley has dropped. And that's primarily the result of overpumping um, for irrigation by growers. And so on the one hand, part of the problem was the contamination of the water. And on the other hand, it was also the fact that that increasingly um, those wells were not able to supply the water needs of the people who lived there. So when that happened, um, and relatively recently, right, last summer, you write about a town going an entire month without water. When that happened, where did they get their water? Uh, Well, uh, some cases, you know, these were water crises and water emergencies. So the counties and the state might have stepped in, in some cases, for instance, to supply towns with bottled water. Um, that happened in Teveston, which is um, right next to Highway 99. It happened in um, Tombstone Territory, which is right next to Sanger. And the city of Porterville um, basically supplied people with drinking water. But you can imagine that getting your water in those big five-gallon bottles, you know, that's enough water perhaps to cook with, and it's enough water to drink. But what about taking a shower? What about cleaning yourself and your children? I mean, it's not really, you know, those were those were emergency measures that were taken. And they certainly highlighted and they dramatized the extreme crisis um, that, that was, that's been developing here. But certainly supplying these communities with bottled water was no answer really to the water needs of those communities. Right. And so has the state stepped in and tried to come up with a solution? Well, yes, but I wouldn't exactly say that the state stepped in. What happened was that these communities got organized and they had some help. And so they began, first of all, suing the communities that were next to them to try to you know, force them to make connections to the municipal water systems. And then they increasingly began going to Sacramento and getting and putting pressure on legislators in Sacramento to pass legislation that would help them. Well, I wonder, though, because we are in this drought and there we are talking about water rationing in many parts of the state, if that is just adding to the tension that these these cities don't want to share their water when we're in such a water crisis. Well, yes, um, I think you're pointing to the larger context, which is, first of all, affecting everybody in this case in the Central Valley, in the San Joaquin Valley, and that is that We have drought conditions. We've had a drought declaration off and on since, what, 2014. As a result of that, there are um, every county is required to come up with a groundwater resource plan. So 
Um, this is a situation in which we're talking about priorities. In other words, who has the priority on water usage? And historically, in the Central Valley and California in general, the priority goes to agriculture. Um, agriculture in California uses 77% of all the water that is used by human beings in the state of California. That's an enormous percentage. Um, that means that the eight and a half million acre feet of water is, is what goes to Los Angeles, San Francisco, and the Colonias and the cities of Central Valley. So everybody is in this situation here of um, drought, of climate change. I don't think there's really anybody that believes that all of a sudden, you know, there's going to be more water from somewhere. Um, and so the water has to be parceled out in a socially just way. And that I think is a part of what is going on here with the colonias as they push for a more equitable distribution of the water that is available. That's David Bacon. You can read his reporting on the water crisis in the nation. And he's the author of many books, including the latest, which has just been published. It's called More Than a Wall, Mas Que Un Muro. David, thank you. Thank you. Listen. Just touching on some real issues right here tonight, that's, that's, right. All. that's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. BX providing the Sonics, my man Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up, you know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that, that's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh, with the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. In the latest installment of our North Star Journeys series, we're going to meet some black Minnesota farmers who are connecting with their agricultural roots. More than a century of discriminatory land policies and financial practices has decimated the number of African-American farmers, but a co-op based in Sandstone is trying to nurture a new community of black farmers and at the same time build a more sustainable and equitable farming system. John Collins reports. Angela Dawson calls herself a fourth-generation reclamation farmer. She's been farming for three years on land near Sandstone. She formed what she calls the 40-acre co-op to help farmers like herself share resources and knowledge. As of now, the co-op has about three dozen active members across the country. Dawson says it's time for people in the state, including those involved with traditional agricultural co-ops, to start taking issues of equity seriously. Let's find a better way to talk about quality of life here in Minnesota for all of us and to find ways to address some of these systemic issues that have long kept us from all achieving, you know, the same quality of life that we all deserve. Dawson is African-American and indigenous and says both sides of her family have dealt with the trauma of losing their land. The Dawson side of her family bought their freedom by farming in the South, then gradually moved north until they settled in Iowa. They really never had the security of ownership. So the, so the contracts that they entered into were not unlike a lot of black farmers where they uh, essentially were boiled down to sharecroppers and um, ended up owing more than they ever could make. Dawson's family lost their land in the mid-70s after going into debt, and it wasn't a unique experience. The number of black farmers in the country has plummeted from about a million a century ago to just about 50,000 now. That's less than 1.5% of farmers in the country. 
This wasn't just a coincidence, says historian Peter Daniel. After slavery was officially abolished in the United States, black people overcame prejudice, terrorism, and discriminatory policies to actually control significant tracts of land. But the agricultural system started to change in the 1930s, and the New Deal was a major influence, Daniel says. Whereas before, black farmers could sue in court for inequitable treatment, the New Deal created county committees made up of elites, typically white. They controlled the resources. You had a committee that appropriated acreage, gave some loans. You had the FHA Federal Home Agency that made loans all run by or controlled by elite county people. Daniel says black farmers had no representation on these committees. The Department of Agriculture was also interested in what officials saw as modernizing American agriculture. So there was an emphasis on chemical fertilizers and mechanization, things that benefit large landowners who had capital to spend. Farmers at this very time had begun to mechanize, to buy tractors, so they didn't need all this labor the sharecroppers who were counted as farmers. Daniel says the sharecroppers moved out. Some went north. That caused the number of black farmers to decline quickly. And this didn't stop during the New Deal. These systems continued on for decades until they resulted in a class action lawsuit from black farmers. They won, but it only applied to farmers who faced discrimination in the 80s and 90s, and many black farmers weren't eligible. These are some of the systemic policies that contributed to a drastic decline in the number of black farmers both across the country and in Minnesota. As of the most recent state agricultural survey, there were only 38 black-owned farms in the state. It wasn't just the official systemic discrimination that black farmers faced. Henry Mitchell grew up picking cotton in Mississippi, started a blues singing career in Memphis, then in the 1970s moved to a hippie commune in Wadena County with his wife, where they started a mushroom farm. The first year was a booming success. I had people buying mushrooms down here, would drive all the way up there to get them. I had people in Wadena and Staples, Long Prairie. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't raise them fast enough. Peace Mitchell, his daughter, remembers what it was like growing up on that farm. It was pretty cool because we had chickens and ducks and pig. I mean, we had all kinds of animals. So it was, uh, it was pretty cool. But Peace Mitchell remembers feeling slightly tokenized as she and her brothers were the only brown kids at school in the rural community. But we were always like kind of like, I don't want to say mascots, but in a way, I mean, you're kind of like a, a novelty. Henry Mitchell said his farm did well. He and his wife picked up jobs in town to supplement their income, but it wasn't always easy. He says he'd largely learned how to shrug off racial slurs, but one day a man in a bar threatened his family. Mitchell said it was motivated by racism. Mitchell says he was minding his own business when the man confronted him. You, nobody's going to tell me what they're going to do to me or my family, and walk away. Mitchell shot and wounded the man and was later found not guilty. But he insists most everyone in the community were nice people. Even now, Henry Mitchell said he can't wait to get back to farming. He's hoping to do that at his old farm, where his daughter and her family have started a tree farm, envisioning it as a retreat for people who want to learn about agriculture. The experience of black farmers in the state has not been uniform. Eugene Sublet and his family moved to a farm in 1970 when he was a young teenager. 
He remembers what it was like moving from a black middle-class family in South Minneapolis to life on a rural farm with ducks, pigs, chickens, and cows. Twice a day, every day, milking cows and then all the things that go with that, you know, cleaning the barn, uh, doing the crops, uh, harvesting the crops, baling hay, getting everything ready for that. So it was a lot of work, and I think for the four of us, um, it was quite a transition. The family sold off the animals after their father died. Both children lived in the Twin Cities. But Eugene's sister, Luella Williams, says she still carries lessons from her time on the farm. I learned how to value and cherish things um, where today kids don't like to value. They want you to give them everything and... We worked for everything we got, and that's one thing I can say that came out of the whole ordeal. But losing that connection to the land can take a toll. Angela Dawson, who says she still experiences discrimination in trying to get resources like federal loans, says her father was traumatized by losing the family's Iowa farm. Her dad only ever really wanted to farm and has never been comfortable in the city. By the time it was about 75, I believe, is when they lost all of the property, it was quite traumatic in that my father was the last one to be removed. And he pretty much uh, disappeared into the countryside for many years and actually didn't have contact with any of us. And later this year, Dawson's father is planning to stay with them at their farm. Dawson's hoping her father can share his own farming experience with her. For NPR News, I'm John Collins. Niggas love to keep it real. Real dumb. Niggas hate now. Shit. So I tell you, niggas are breaking your house. You want to save your money? Put it in your books. Because niggas don't read. Just put the money in the books. Shit. Books are like kryptonite to a nigga. Here's a book. No! On Instagram's Bookstagram handle, there's a new project to celebrate black writers. Ma'ayan Silver with WUWM in Milwaukee tells us all about it. Cree Miles is always thinking about new ways to get people to read books by black authors. One example of her creative approach? This freestyle rap session called A Cipher. The Milwaukee-based book influencer posted the video to her Instagram account, Always Black. Here she is with Milwaukee rapper Genesis Renji. This is the Always Black Cypher 2022. We got black. We got books. We got black books. Jen, take it away. Always black. My mama taught me that. In pages I would turn. Said if you can read, then you can lead. Ain't nothing you can't learn. When yes. Learn, <laughs> I watch it every day. That's like, I'm almost prouder of that than my children. <laughs> The Instagram account Always Black is a collaboration between Miles and book giant Penguin Random House. Miles first partnered with the company last year when she organized a readathon of Toni Morrison's books. The late author was published by Knopf, now part of Penguin Random House. A few months later, the company offered Miles a job, curating an Instagram platform centered on black books. Miles calls the platform Always Black thanks to her husband, who came up with the name about 20 seconds after she was offered the job. 
And he was like, how about just always black, like all the ways? So it was that quick. And for me, it's um, an oral check to make sure <laughs> that I'm not just doing Cree's black. Now, Miles has cultivated a space that includes interactive readathons, chats with authors, photos and lists of new releases, and other creative content about black lit. Like this Word of the Week video about the word ephemeral that she gleaned from Brandon Taylor's book Filthy Animals. It's set to rapper Saweetie's 2020 song Tap In. Kim K's marriage, babies in the carriage, being mad at your moms after she embarrassed. Ephemeral means less than for a short time, including this Word of the Week, K bye. Miles' work was nominated for a Webby which honors excellence on the internet, and a shorty, which recognizes the best work in social and digital media. Miles' content often comes from her house in Milwaukee, framed by plants and colorfully arranged bookshelves. From there, she creates an easy rapport with internationally renowned authors. Hey. Hi, Tanahasi. Hey, how you doing, man? Miles immediately jokes that an interview with Tanahasi Coates is the biggest flex of all time. Out in the bookstagram streets, everybody's like, yeah, Tanas, he's kind and all the great things like that. But it's also like you're the literary Beyonce. So you know what? You know what? You need to tell them streets. They need to dream a little bigger. <laughs> Miles has a breezy interview style, connecting with authors personally and asking sharp questions about their works. It's a mixture of natural talent, preparation and an earnest respect for writers who she believes deserve the celebrity of singers or actors. I'm all about glamorizing Black literature and the writers. Like, they give us such important stories. They should be treated accordingly. She says Black authors know what it's like to be a person of color. I think a lot of times when you're just moving throughout the world as a Black person, as a Black woman, things are happening to you every day, and they rub you a certain way, but you have nothing to validate whether or not your feelings are justified. She found that validation reading Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye many years ago. I'm reading it and I was like, yes, and yes, and yes, I'm not crazy. That was a seminal moment in my life, for sure. In championing Black books, she's developed an engaged community and the respect of fellow book influencers. Tracy Thomas runs the popular Stacks podcast. Often other things I've seen on publishing platforms, they might, you know, have a Black intern and then they post something that, you know, uses Black vernacular but is very, feels very hollow. Always Black feels super authentic. Miles is functioning in a publishing world that's still three quarters white, according to a 2019 survey by Lee and Lowe. 76% of the books Penguin Random House released from 2019 to 2021 were by white creators. Always Black has proven to be an important way for the company to promote its Black works and branch out to new audiences. Miles consistently thinks about those who don't yet see themselves as readers. She wants people to know that great books are for everyone. Like, you wouldn't say, oh, I can't listen to Whitney Houston. Her voice is too good. I don't get it. And it's the same way when you're reading James Baldwin or Toni Morrison. Or, says Miles, many of the authors writing the Black canon today. For NPR News, I'm Ayan Silver in Milwaukee. And by way of disclosure, NPR receives underwriting support from Penguin Random House. The gay rights movement is changing everything. She'll be the first African-American and first openly gay woman to hold the post. On Thursday, President Biden named Karine Jean-Pierre the next White House press secretary, succeeding Jen Psaki.
but it's not always been plain sailing. The eldest daughter of Caribbean immigrants who worked multiple jobs and 15-hour days in New York City just to make ends meet. Karine was expected to become a doctor. After she failed to get the science grades she needed, she had to shoulder the disappointment of her family and even attempted suicide. Subsequently, she rethought her life, got involved in politics and eventually ended up working in the White House for America's first black president, Barack Obama. James Copnell has been talking to a former colleague of Karine Jean-Pierre, Disha Dyer, the former White House social secretary and currently a resident fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics. I worked with her in the White House at the same time, and then we actually ended up working together. She is part of a few collectives that I lead. So she serves as a mentor to younger Black people that are coming up in politics. And she also contributes to a scholarship that I did for Black women that want to be in politics. It's a tough job, isn't it, being a very public face of of the White House? It's a very tough job. Yes, it is. Well, in that role as press secretary, you have to have all of the answers, but you're on the spot, right? You have to make sure that you are concise, that you have to make sure that you are representing the administration, but also all of the communities that are dependent on the administration. You have to make sure that, you know, you don't lose your temper or lose your cool. And you have to make sure that you're, you know, speaking to the American people and being able to, not just the American people, but globally, being able to articulate um, what the administration's doing, what they're thinking. And then sometimes you have to be willing to say, you know, I'll get back to you. I don't have that answer and be calm and collective and come through with facts, even when they're hard to state. As someone who has, you know, had a senior post within the White House, what, what sort of advice would you give her if you had the opportunity? That's a great question. And, you know, she doesn't need really advice from me. I think that one of the best things that I learned that I was always passed on, which, you know, I think she already has mastered is really sticking true to, you know, why you're there and sticking true to, you know, um, you know what your job is and who your family core is, your family, your friends, because that's really important when you get in a job like that and when you get in a senior role at the White House. But I know she already has that down because she's fabulous. So, yeah. In all the commentary about, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at official statements, first black woman, first openly LGBTQ plus person to serve at the White House and so on, Is there a a risk that some will say, oh, she's been appointed because of that, not because of her qualities, but because of her categories? Of course. I think there's definitely a risk of that. Again, she's a black woman in America. She's a Haitian American and she's also part of the LGBTQ community. And so I think that, you know, oftentimes people look at those things first instead of looking at the fact that she actually is qualified as well. Disha Dyer, the former White House Social Secretary. White supremacy is the sickness. Research from the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences has found a link between racial discrimination and COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. KBIR's Remington Miller has details. According to a survey conducted last July, about 41% of eligible black Arkansans statewide had been vaccinated, while in some counties more than 70% remained unvaccinated. UAMS researchers collected data about vaccine hesitancy among black residents. The study also suggested there was a connection between vaccine hesitancy and black adults who say they have experienced racism in the criminal justice system. Dr. Don Willis, an assistant professor with UAMS, joins me now to talk about the research findings. Hi, Dr. Willis. Hi, great to be here. So tell me a little bit about the research that was conducted. Um, We conducted a survey, a random sample survey with oversampling. 
um, to assess people's attitudes about vaccines in the state of Arkansas. And we were really curious to look at uh, specifically how things like experiences of racial discrimination might be impacting uh, attitudes of vaccine hesitancy among Black adults. And so what kind of data was collected? So this is survey data uh, collected uh, through a phone survey. So individuals were called and just read the questions. And what was the outcome of this research? When you guys called all these people, what, what did you find? The main findings in this study were related specifically to looking at variation of hesitancy among Black adults. And so for this specific study, what we did was uh, look only at uh, attitudes of hesitancy for Black Arkansans. The larger study was a sample of 1,500. There were about 350 Black Arkansans who we looked at specifically for this study. So while there were other findings uh, for the, the survey, the sample as a whole, specifically what we found among Black adults was that there was quite a bit of variation in their attitudes of, of hesitancy towards COVID-19 vaccines. So about half were not hesitant at all, while the remainder reported some level of hesitancy. Roughly 22% were very hesitant, around 14% were somewhat hesitant, and another 14% a little bit hesitant. Their odds of being hesitant towards a COVID vaccine decreased as the uh, age increased and as things like past influenza vaccination increased. But their odds of hesitancy increased if, for example, they had experienced the death of a close friend or family member due to COVID, and if they reported experiencing racial discrimination with police or in courts. What does it mean that they were more hesitant after interacting with the criminal justice system? What does that mean for Arkansas? I think it means that if we want to address racial disparities in COVID-19 vaccination, which is important for, in turn, addressing racial disparities in COVID outcomes, that we need to look beyond just the medical institutions, that we might need to also look at our criminal justice system and uh, perhaps other uh, powerful institutions across the state. All right. And then based on this research, do you have any suggestions for how health officials should approach the Black community in terms of encouraging vaccinations or other COVID-19 precautions? Yeah, I think it's one thing that this study shows, I believe, is that um, for many individuals, their hesitancy is reasonable. Um, you know, if you experience racial discrimination, uh, it's reasonable to then uh, be a skeptic. And so I think that um, public health officials that want to increase uptake of vaccination for any group, but in this case, Black individuals, need to think about understanding why that hesitancy exists. And it's important that we contextualize people's hesitancy. If without the context of understanding uh, that people are experiencing racism and then that, that can feed into uh, attitudes of vaccine hesitancy, 
then reporting racial differences and hesitancy could actually lead to more scapegoating. So that's obviously not what we want to occur. I think in future work, more researchers need to start looking at structural indicators of racism. Is this especially a concern in the state as COVID-19 safety precautions have become less strict? I would say so. Um, I think as precautions are becoming less strict, vaccination just becomes even more important. That was Dr. Willis, an assistant professor with UAMS. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Remington Miller, KUAR News. I've seen what's around the corner. I've seen what's over the horizon. And I promise you, you niggas have nothing to celebrate. I know I won't get there with you. I'm going to Canada. University student contacted Uber several times with the video and her complaint asking. So I'm just asking you to please drop us off where we're supposed to go. We don't want to walk. Helen Turk hit record when the driver began demanding she and her friend, who's black, get out of the car before their trip was over. Because the ride was taking too long in traffic, they refused. Then this happened. You have somewhere else to be, don't you, man? Shut the f up. <laughs> you f how can you even say that? Like, nobody's allowed to say that. I was, I was shocked. The university student contacted Uber several times with the video and her complaint, asking if the driver was still working for the company. Weeks later, she still didn't have an answer. They're like, oh, we're investigating, we're investigating. What are you investigating? You just need to watch the video. Then things took another turn. Uber charged Turk's credit card almost $300, saying the driver claimed she'd damaged his side mirror and she would have to compensate him. I didn't damage a, like a mirror and it's ridiculous to charge me like out of the blue. Uber never told Turk what action, if any, it took against the driver. Instead, she heard through Go Public that the company says it removed him from the platform as soon as it became aware of the incident. But when asked for details and dates, since Turk had to report the incident several times, Uber refused. The company says Uber does not tolerate any form of racism. It also has a detailed zero-tolerance policy. But an expert who provides diversity training says Uber needs to walk the talk when faced with real-life situations. They didn't communicate with the person who was affected by the behavior. And that is where the problem lies. Two years ago, this Uber passenger said the same thing happened to her. He turned around and said, effing N-word, get out of the car. Uber later added anti-racism commitments and material to its website. But it's you okay, didn't. Helen, it's okay. That's what it's In this latest case, Turk's friend asked not to use his name, saying the focus should be on Uber. At the very least, Turk says, the company should apologize to him. I'm the one with the Uber account, but he's the actual victim. The driver couldn't be reached for comment. Uber refunded the charge for the mirror after hearing from Go Public. Turk says she's stopped using the ride service. Rosa Marcatelli, CBC News, Calgary. I believe the children are our future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. The school year is winding down, but parental anxiety isn't. That's because after a tough two years dealing with all the fallout of the COVID pandemic, 
We're also learning just how much children and youth are struggling with mental health issues, even as the pandemic-related restrictions ease. In their 2022 trend report, the American Psychological Association called the situation a crisis. But our next guest says that this crisis isn't new, that in fact, children and youth have been struggling for years now, and that the toxic politics tying the issue to the COVID pandemic isn't helping. Judith Warner, a journalist and author who's written extensively about mental health issues, wrote about all this recently for The Washington Post magazine in a piece titled, The Children's Mental Health Crisis Didn't Start with the Pandemic. And she's with us now to tell us more. Judith Warner, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. So so when did it start? If it didn't start with the pandemic, is there a, is there a time frame that you could point to 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 suggest when you know this really became a concern? I'm sure there was no point in time when kids didn't have mental health issues. I mean, that just wouldn't make sense because adults have them and most mental health issues begin by early adolescence, but certainly there's been an acceleration over the past 10 years. I think that there isn't any debate about that, especially when it comes to depression and anxiety. Well, you know, there is one disturbing statistic that one in six high school students revealed they had created a suicide plan in the previous year. This is according to a 2019 CDC report, and that's a 44 percent increase since 2009. So in that time frame that you're telling us about, what, why might that be? You know, there are so many theories about it, and the most popular theory is always that it has to do with the advent of smartphones. And, you know, there's no doubt that life online has had an impact. Social media has had some kind of impact, but none of the experts I've spoken with have ever been willing to just simplify it down to one thing. Um, I don't think it's ever just one thing. And at this point, you know, I think there's always the issue of reporting that with each successive generation of parents, um, we have parents who are increasingly aware of mental health issues, grew up with people talking about them, you know, bring less stigma to it than in generations before. I really see that with younger parents now compared to my own cohort, let's say. Um, so that's, of course, part of it. But this has also been a really stressful time in our country, you know, for quite a while now. And so I think that you can't separate out what's happening with kids from what's been happening with all of us. So I guess with, when you look at all that, do you sense any consensus among adults that this really is a crisis? I know that mental health practitioners are saying that it is. A lot of parents are saying that it is. A lot of school officials are saying that it is. Do you see any broader public consensus that this is a crisis that needs to be focused on? Yes, I think that there is a broader social consensus now that this is a crisis that needs to be focused on. And one thing that is, I don't know, frustrating, ironic about that is that for such a long time, the opposite narrative was the consensus that kids were being overdiagnosed, you know, that kids were being overpathologized and that, you know, we were doing harm to our kids in the process. And it's, I guess there's still some of that um, rhetoric in all of the special snowflake talk, you know, oh, this generation is so sensitive that they react to everything. I, I've always, you know, hated that. And especially now, I think it's something that people really ought to call into question because it's clear that, 
you know, this younger generation is suffering and they have good reasons to be suffering. And, you know, we can't minimize what they've what they're going through. It's been a really ugly and difficult time. But is there then any any sort of larger social consensus about what we should do about it? Do you see any consensus around a direction that this country could take to address these matters? I think that when you look at what the experts say, the expert organizations, the American Psychological Association, et cetera, there is a consensus among experts about what has to happen. And it turns around access and affordability and um, also diversifying the mental health workforce, the school counseling workforce. I mean, you see this over and over again. I also think there is a consensus in that expert community around the fact that something has to happen really fast and that you need to bring help to kids where they are. So you need to increase work that can be done in schools around giving them the tools, basically, to remain mentally healthier, you know, to deal with really high levels of of distress. And the problem is I am not in any way convinced that any of that's going to happen. I mean, you know, one of the things that parents who are, you know, yelling at school board meetings are now yelling about is social emotional learning, which somehow has been turned into a vector um, for so-called critical race theory, none of which makes any sense. But if they're already pushing back on, on social emotional learning, then what's going to happen, you know, when you step it up a bit and say, well, you have to actually do some psychological skill building? This sounds actually very discouraging. It sounds like a really discouraging picture. So um, can we leave people with some thoughts about what they can do if they are concerned about this, particularly for, for, for parents? Well, yeah. And I also think it's funny. I This is because I'm such a negative person, but I don't think it's all that discouraging in that solutions do exist. Solutions that work, that aren't terribly expensive, and that can be put into place really quickly and easily, meaning, you know, these school-based interventions, these trainings. And I think that, you know, for parents to be aware of that, it would be a very important and potentially powerful thing, you know, if they're demanding it, if they're demanding that there's funding for that, that time is being spent on that, rather than, as is often the case, um, complaining that school time should just be used for academic subjects. Judith Warner is a journalist and best-selling author who has written extensively about youth mental health. Her latest book is And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. The article that we're talking about, about children's mental health, appears in the Washington Post magazine. Judith Warner, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. And if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, we hope you'll contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. Since you're my special friend, come closer for a special treat. I'm going to let you touch me in a special place. It is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. Just a warning here, this story contains graphic descriptions of sexual abuse. 
Over a period of seven decades and across the nation, the Boy Scouts of America have faced repeated accusations of sexual abuse. More than two years ago, the organization was hit with hundreds of lawsuits from former scouts who say they were sexually abused by scout leaders. A Delaware judge will soon rule on the Boy Scouts of America bankruptcy case. It would provide more than $2.7 billion to over 82,000 claimants. Here's NPR's Wade Goodwin. 70-year-old John Sakowitz went on his first Boy Scout overnight trip with his good friend Patrick Quinn back when he was 12 years old in 1965. Instead of a lovely night in the outdoors, it was an unimaginable horror. I was abused. I was uh, raped, uh, anally penetrated when I was 12 years old. I was a student at uh, elementary school in New City, New York. Both boys say they were brutally raped by the Boy Scout leader. Sakowitz's friend Patrick was so devastatingly traumatized, he drank himself to death as fast as he could, dying of liver failure at the age of 18. Sakowitz, too, has never really recovered. I had been accepted to Johns Hopkins University, attended the first semester, survived a suicide attempt, dropped out of college for the next three or four years. And my life has been very disrupted by that early childhood trauma ever since that time. If the settlement proposal is approved, the National Boy Scouts of America would provide a little less than 10% of the $2.7 billion settlement to the abuse victims. 250 local Boy Scout councils would provide more than half a billion dollars, and the two largest insurance companies, the Hartford and Century Indemnity, more than $1.5 billion. Finally, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will provide a quarter of a billion for claims involving the church. I mean, I handle a lot of sexual abuse cases. This one is just on another level, again, because of the national scale and how long it went on. Adam Slater is a founding partner at Slater Slater Shulman, which is representing more than 14,000 Boy Scout victim survivors. Ken Rothweiler, Slater's colleague, is also on the Boy Scout case. We were satisfied with the trial because we thought it went well uh, for the survivors group. We're hopeful that almost any day now we're going to get a decision from the court. Lawyers for the Boy Scouts of America declined to talk on the record before the judge's ruling, but appear mostly satisfied with the proposed settlement. I will have myself a good cry. John Sackowitz says he'll be remembering Patrick Quinn back before that terrible night in 1965 when they went on their first Boy Scout trip. Through every day of this proceeding, I've remembered my friend Patrick. You know, this is a case that uh, brings closure and justice to survivors. But I know one kid at least who did not survive. The ruling by Delaware Judge Laurie Selber Silverstein will probably be soon. The case is then expected to be appealed to federal court. Wade Goodwin, NPR News, Dallas. If you or someone you know is thinking about suicide, there are free trained counselors available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Contact them by calling the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. 
but you know, when I talked to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Cedarburg, an Ozaki County Circuit Court judge upheld some and reversed other findings of the Wisconsin Department of Public Instructions ruling against the Cedarburg School District regarding a parent's complaint. Judge Stephen Kane on Friday ruled in the school district's appeal of the DPI ruling, which stated that CSD did not conduct a reasonable investigation of a parent's complaint that her child had experienced persistent racial harassment at Cedarburg High School. The DPI also noted back in July 2021 that the district had both failed to follow its own complaint procedures and to take even the most basic steps to develop sufficient facts to determine whether a racially hostile environment existed in district schools. The DPI's decision came after an appeal was filed by the American Civil Liberties Union of Wisconsin on behalf of Jesse McQuenview, whose biracial son was allegedly continually subjected to persistent racial jokes and comments at school. In the fall of 2020, McQuenview's son reported to the CHS vice principal that a fellow student had praised Kyle Rittenhouse and stated that he would drive a vehicle through Black Lives Matter protesters if he ever went to a protest. In addition to the initial incident, the complaint had alleged, among other things, that McQuenview's child frequently heard the N-word in the hallways of the high school and that school-sponsored sporting events and students at the high school displayed Confederate flag stickers on vehicles in the parking lot. The DPI gave the district 30 days to submit a corrective action plan specifying the steps it would take to ensure future compliance with the procedures specified in its non-discrimination and anti-harassment policies, as well as the steps it would take to conduct a complete factual investigation McQuenview's claims. Regarding the initial incident, the comment made by a student about driving through a Black Lives Matter protest, Kane said the court finds the DPI's decision was not supported by the substantial evidence in the record. The DPI took issue that the assistant principal did not report the complaint to a compliance officer, which is part of procedure under School District Policy 5517 Student Anti-Harassment. Attorney Jennifer Williams, who represents CSD, stated during oral arguments that the information the district received about the initial incident did not meet the policy requirements of its harassment policy to involve a compliance officer. In Policy 5517, it defines harassment as any threatening, insulting, or dehumanizing gesture, use of data or computer software, or written, verbal or physical conduct directed against a student, Kane said in the record it states that the comment was overheard by the student and that there was nothing that suggests it was directed at them. If the court were to adopt that manner in evaluating the complaints not specifically directed at one particular person, that would open up a floodgate of harassment complaints if anyone were to overhear something, he said. And it frankly would result in an unworkable and unreasonable outcome. Kane added that the assistant principal took immediate action into investigating the complaint. He took corrective action and he did it in a manner I believe the record shows clearly that he did so with an appreciation for how the student was hurt by the comment, Kane said. Kane also stated that the court doesn't support the DPI's findings that the school district's investigation on the use of the N-word at school-sponsored sporting events was unreasonable due to the lack of information that was given. The school district's investigator spoke with the athletic director, who said he had no reports of racial harassment at sporting events. Kane said the investigator was given no detail as to who, what, where or when the N-word was used at sporting events. However, Kane had a different opinion regarding the investigation of the allegation of the N-word being said in the school hallways. The record really is devoid of the school district taking any efforts to interview staff, hallway monitors or consult discipline records to determine if the N-word had been addressed in the past or was sort of an ongoing issue, Kane said adding that the court upholds the DPI's determination with this.
Kane also upheld the DPI's finding that the school district's investigation into Confederate flag stickers was unreasonable. He noted in the record that the assistant principal was interviewed by the district's investigator about this, and he said he was not aware of Confederate flag stickers. The record is clear that despite the assistant principal not being aware that the investigator or anyone else associated with the district didn't take any steps to do what would be a simple investigation, he said, adding the investigator failed to walk through the parking lot to check for themselves. The court ordered that the district take steps to reconduct a complete investigation into the allegation of Confederate flags and the allegation of the N-word being used in the hallways at the high school and to make any appropriate amendments, if any, to its final determination of the complaint. The judge's ruling left many questions on each side and there will be a status conference Friday. All parties respond to ruling in a statement to families, the school district said it was pleased that the court's decision rejected the DPI's overreaching requirement that the district take extraordinary and burdensome measures, not justified by policy or law, to investigate even the vaguest allegations of harassment. Last week's decision validates the district's efforts to create a safe and welcoming learning environment for all students, according to the statement. The school district's statement also said, while the court determined that there are additional steps the district can take to investigate other of the parents' allegations, the court held that there was no basis for the DPI to have issued the district a corrective order. A statement from the DPI said the CSD statement is misleading. To be clear, the court agreed with DPI's order that Cedarburg School District must conduct an adequate investigation of parent complaints that the district did not adequately investigate the first time, according to the DPI's statement. Such adequate investigation is mandated by the district's own policies. This is not a case of the district being able to take these steps. The district is required to take these steps. In terms of the court's statement regarding corrective action plans, this is an outstanding issue which has not been resolved by the court. There is a scheduling conference set for this Friday, May 6. The ACLU, which represented McQuenview as the interested party in the case, released a press release expressing that it was pleased with the judge's ruling. We are happy that the outcome of this case will force Cedarburg School District to finally comply with what the DPI required them to do last summer. It is nonetheless disappointing that litigation was needed for CSD to do right by Cedarburg students and parents by looking into and meaningfully addressing reports of racial harassment, said Elizabeth Lambert, Equal Justice Works Fellow with the ACLU of Wisconsin and the attorney on the case. The ACLU disagreed with the CSD's statement and called it misleading when it said that the court determined that DPI erred in its finding that the district did not follow its own anti-harassment policies when responding to certain harassment complaints, that the court also found that the district adequately investigated certain complaints of harassment and that it also called DPI's directive extraordinary and burdensome measures. In actuality, the court ruled that the district had conducted an inadequate investigation into key allegations of the complaint and ordered a new investigation, according to the press release. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. Jones College Prep is one of five Chicago public high schools recently named one of the best schools in the state and nation. But over the last few years, Jones students and teachers have complained of racist incidents. Other diverse Chicago public high schools have dealt with similar issues. And now a study of the school lays out problems and takes the administration to task for not properly responding. We've got WBEZ's Sarah Karp here to fill in some details. Hi, Sarah. Hi. All right. So, Sarah, start telling us about Jones. What's going on? So Jones is one of the city's 11 selective enrollment high schools. These are highly sought after schools. There are five that have racially diverse student populations, and Jones is one of them. Jones is also downtown in the South Loop, so it's one of the most accessible of all the selective enrollment schools. But over the last decade, the demographics have changed. 
black students now make up only about 12% of the population, down from 25% a decade ago. Um, And there are fewer low-income students. Okay. So what issues are cropping up at Jones? Some issues started to publicly surface in the 2019-2020 school year. At that time, students of color created a Facebook page, which was inundated with comments from students about negative experiences that they had at the school. Rayleigh Montgomery was a sophomore at the time. She says it was a new and eye-opening experience to see all these comments. So just seeing a lot of that was sort of overwhelming, which made my experience a little bit tainted. So in response to this, the school paid for um, and offered several different anti-racist trainings for students and staff. But these exposed other problems. This fall, the seven black teachers at Jones, and that's seven out of 110 teachers, sent a powerful letter to the principal saying that they no longer participate in the trainings. They said that when they shared their concerns in an honest way, they were met with silence and action and indifference. Okay, so we did mention at the top of this uh, segment that there has been a racial equity assessment of Jones. And what did that study actually find? It said those trainings laid a good foundation, but that the administration doesn't do enough to hold teachers or students accountable for implementing what they learned or provide leadership. In a survey, Black and Latino students and parents said that they were less likely to feel like they belonged at the school than white and Asian students and parents. And in the survey, um, most people said that the administration doesn't respond effectively to racist instances. And I should mention that the principal did not respond to questions about the study, but that a lot of people have said that he's done a good job building up the school. And CPS says that they're working with Jones to address these issues. Okay, so Sarah, it sounds like there are definitely people who feel like their voices aren't being heard at Jones. But what does this mean for Jones's future and schools like it? For sure. So I I spoke with a Jones art teacher named Kat Tai. She's an Asian American teacher, and she told me something that data can't really capture. She said it feels like white students wield a lot of privilege, and that drowns out other students. This is what she said. There are just a lot of well-off white kids who have very loud and very powerful parents and admin just sort of give in to those parents. I think the bigger question here is who are these elite high schools for and what happens if students feel like they're not for them? The good news is that as these problems have come up, the school district is working with students from selective enrollment schools and making schools more culturally responsive. Um, Rayleigh, the student I talked to, um, says that as People are talking about these issues. From her perspective, things have gotten better. And she says she's still had a good high school experience that she thinks will help set her up well as she heads to the University of Illinois at Champaign this fall. That's WBEZ education reporter Sarah Carter. Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. What you doing to me, Chicago? At Rune Trail High School in Chicago's south suburbs, about 60% of the 1,100 students are black or multiracial. Police, in cooperation with school officials, have written 178 tickets for student misbehavior since the start of the 2018-19 school year. School district records show 94% of them went to black or multiracial students. Elizabeth Posley, whose sons Josiah and Jeremiah attend Bloom Trail, said the boys were treated too harshly after they were part of a school fight that got out of hand. 
They're young black men, she said. They stereotyped them. Last week, the first installment of the Tribune ProPublica investigation The Price Kids paid detailed how student ticketing flouts a state law meant to prevent schools from using fines to discipline students. In response, Illinois top education official told school leaders to immediately stop and consider both the cost and the consequences of these fines. Today, a new installment examines racial disparities in student ticketing. In the schools and districts examined, an analysis indicated that black students were twice as likely to be ticketed as their white peers. But you know, when I talked to Malia and Sasha, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community that I've visited all across the country. The TSSAA is now weighing in after Grace Christian Academy students appeared in a video with racial slurs. Jared Austin live with the latest development in a story that we broke yesterday. Jared, we know that people in the video are GCA students. The question now is, are they student athletes? How does TSSAA factor into all of this? Yeah, Amanda, they're saying that Grace Christian Academy took care of the matter themselves and notified them about it. The TSSAA is the state organization overseeing high school sports and creating and enforcing rules about what happens on the field. It does not get into what goes on off the field. This is the video that is now deleted from the social media page, Truth for GCA. It shows a teen wearing a white hood over his head, shouting a racial slur after being asked, who do you hate? You can hear people in the background laughing after the racial slur is said. Some of the comments we've been getting on our Facebook include wanting the school to take more action, punishing the school and students involved, and people amazed that some still find this funny. The school says they have taken proper disciplinary action on the students involved, and this does not represent the school's values. And Jared, I think a lot of people, one of the big questions for them is still, okay, what disciplinary action um, were the students suspended, expelled? What is the gravity of this? Kind of unclear still. Yeah, we did reach out again today to see if they could clarify that, but they told us what they sent out yesterday. According to the school's handbook, though, punishment for using a racial slur can go all the way up to expulsion. All right. Jared Austin reporting for us this afternoon. Jared, thanks. One of our coworkers, which is, this is, I guess, tangent. She is white, and she didn't say her husband was black. She said he was from the Bahamas. I'm like, well, a lot of black people down there. Um, and today was the last day, so we were kind of not didn't have any much to do. So somebody was looking up people's, um, oh, I'm going to look you up and blah, blah, blah. And her thinking about getting married without there, and I didn't think nothing of it. So she said, talked about her child and how her child had really curly hair our shoulders, but when you straighten it, it's down to her hip. I'm like, that's black people here. <laughs> I know, I know shrinkage when I when I hear it. I I know, and so. But what she said was something happened at the school where her child wasn't wearing the same clothes that she sent her in, and I again thinking, oh no, black child alert, black child alert. And she's like, oh, no, this happens, blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, oh, no. So, but I was calm when I said it's the last day. Let me just walk on out, you know, sign on out and do what I have to do. So, of course, I was concerned about that because I did see, I'm sure you'll probably bring it up tomorrow, that there was some child only a, a year old and they pulled the braids or the dress, whatever, from their head. I'm like, are you serious? Well, yes, they are. 
Now to a Channel 2 Action News exclusive, a state agency investigating a local daycare where a mother tells Channel 2 Action News that her son's hair has been ripped out of his scalp. This is the second case involving a La Petite Academy in just the past few weeks, but this happened at a different location. Channel 2's Larry Sproul live in Norcross today. Larry, you talked to a parent and the state agency that is investigating. And Justin, that state agency confirmed to me in this seven-page report that they are investigating La Petite. Now, this is my second investigation in a week. It's a story you will only see here on Channel 2. I want this La Petite to be held accountable. Julie Satute says, let's start there. She tells me it's been more than a month since she picked up her son from this La Petite Academy on Indian Trail Road in North Cross on March 24th. I noticed that his scalp, his hair had been pulled from his scalp. So he had braids uh, coming from the middle of his hair down to his ears. She tells me she questioned the school numerous times about what happened. One minute said that the school, the school uh, teachers told me that he did it to himself, but when I asked for the incident report, the incident report states that they don't know what happened. Just last week, I reported about another incident where a little one-year-old girl hair was pulled out after she got stuck in a cubby at a La Petite location in Tyrone. Now, the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning is investigating the academy in Norcross for lack of supervision of a child. How does that make you feel that there now is an official investigation from an outside organization? Um, well, I definitely have hope that this time there will be more uh, transparency with what's happening. I reached out to La Petite. They sent me this statement. It says, in part, for privacy concerns, we would not comment in any more detail. Further, we are partnering with state child care licensing as they conduct their review. We will take any appropriate steps based on the findings once the assessment is concluded. And that mother tells me she did hire an attorney and she is now seeking legal action. We are live in Norcross tonight. Larry Spruill, Channel 2 Action News. This week, a judge in Oklahoma ruled that a lawsuit against the city of Tulsa for its role in the 1921 race massacre can go forward. The plaintiffs include the last three known survivors who lived through the attack as children more than a century ago. Reporter Chris Polanski of member station KWGS was in the courtroom for the judge's ruling. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this massacre uh, from over 100 years ago, uh, remind us what happened. Sure. Um, in 1921, a mob of white Tulsans attacked the black neighborhood of Greenwood, which was pretty well known in its time for being a district of black wealth and culture. You've probably heard of it being called Black Wall Street. This mob destroys virtually the entire neighborhood, looting homes and stores, setting fires, and they kill as many as 300 people. Afterwards, the city and insurance companies reject claims for compensation for the victims. They're even some explicit calls for the neighborhood not to be allowed to be rebuilt. And the neighborhood never does build back into what it was, and victims are never given restitution. So let's fast forward to this week. Uh, what is this lawsuit seeking? 
So the plaintiffs include descendants of massacre victims as well as the three last known living survivors. There's Hughes Van Ellis, they call him Uncle Red, he's 101, and Viola Fletcher and Leslie Benningfield Randall are each 107. Wow. They're suing the city, the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma National Guard, the local Chamber of Commerce, among others, all under Oklahoma's public nuisance statute. They're saying these organizations aided and abetted the massacre creating a nuisance in Greenwood that continues to this day in the form of various inequities. They want the defendants to make it right with things like a victim's compensation fund and a tax exemption for descendants. The entities being sued, meanwhile, acknowledge the massacre was horrible, but say that there is no ongoing nuisance in a legal sense. Their attorneys kept saying in court that they're being asked to solve racism. Kenny Ucabula, one of the attorneys who filed the lawsuit, says that's not accurate. That is absolutely not what we're asking to do. If you look at the facts that we have alleged in our complaint and then look at the relief that we have requested, you can see that it is very clearly tied to the conduct of the massacre and the resulting harm that the defendants have instituted through their policies over the 100 years following the massacre. So as an example, the plaintiffs note a hospital was destroyed during the massacre and never rebuilt. And today, health outcomes are demonstrably worse in Greenwood than in other parts of Tulsa. So... They're asking for health care access in the neighborhood as part of their abatement plan. Uh, so after the judge's ruling allowing this lawsuit to go forward, where do things stand right now? Well, the city and other defendants had asked the judge to throw out the lawsuit entirely. As you noted, she did not do that. And so now the lawsuit moves ahead. And that means experts like historians, economists, archaeologists, developers even will likely be called upon to come to Tulsa and figure out a plan to present to the court to address these issues. Lead attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons has been working on this for a long time, and he's trying to move quickly. He got a little emotional talking to reporters after the hearing. We want them to see justice in their lifetime. I personally have seen so many survivors die in my 20-plus years working on this issue. I just don't want to see the last three die That's without right. justice. So you can tell they're really hoping these survivors are around to see a win in court and some sense of justice even if it has taken over a century. That's Chris, that's Chris Polanski of member station KWGS in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Thanks very much. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, May 7, 2022, so I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, suggestions to share. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate few things to share before we get started. I guess two tangents. Uh, number one, 
I would like my uh, acknowledgement. Two consecutive weeks, the compensatory call-in included the great Raphael Sadiq, victim of white supremacy, and not just playing Negro tunes for the fun of it, but to include Raphael Sadiq to help make sense of the information being presented. Two in a row. Two, last week, uh, Princess, investor in the cows, uh, long-time listener, caller, she dialed in and she was sharing her views uh, about the, I guess, two years plus of the pandemic situation and saying, man, you know, for parents, um, you know, at least they could metaphor look for the silver lining. Right. Because non-white children, at least some of them maybe haven't had to be in class physically as much over this time period. And so maybe they got some distance from some of their racist classmates. Uh, and I said, well, one, I'm always cautious about speaking out of turn or, or talking about the parenting experience when I don't have children. Two, I've said there have been just countless reports about incidents of what they call Zoom bombing over the past two and a half years. Uh, where little race soldiers, they get online, they got to put the penis and the swastika and disrupt everything and get the whole meeting shut down. Lots and lots of this. Tons of these reports. I shared a few uh, after the program concluded. So this was this past Saturday. I went to the University of Washington, Seattle campus on Wednesday to do research, get ready for several programs. They have a statue of white slaver, rapist, racist George Washington as you enter Red Square. That's like the main area of the campus. Some of the uh, main libraries and main administrative uh, buildings are there. Kane Hall, where a lot of the main lectures and things are right there at uh, Red Square. We used to uh, back of the bus, Gus, uh, several other folks who used to sit there. That was the, the lead up 2007. That summer was the lead up to the cows. We would sit outside. We'd be like, it's hard to imagine there was a time where Gus T was a part of an entourage of like 10 to 15 people. And we'd be sitting out in the middle of Red Square in the shadow of George Washington's sh in the shadow of George Washington's statue talking about white supremacy, racism. Whew, crazy days, but that did happen. Anywho, so I'm walking on campus. I see the statue that I've seen thousands of times. Lo and behold, ruffians have tagged the statue. People are gawking around and giggling and taking pictures. And I'm looking and so it says slave master. They've got that written on and uh, abortion rights. I'm like, wow, is this about the Supreme Court case? They're upset about abortion, reproductive rights, so-called. Or is this about racism, white supremacy? I go around to the rear of the statue. Lo and behold, a penis. Large one, too. I took pictures and posted them on my Facebook page, Facebook.com. The problem is white people. But that was literally just days after I said that's what race soldiers have spent. It seems like lots of them all over the world have spent the last two plus years doing. And 
Whammo, not even on Zoom. This one, real life right on the statue. They didn't even clean it up in a timely manner. Next, let's get to some of the reports and then we'll get to the folks who dialed in. Or actually, before we even get to the reports, I said I went to the University of Washington to prepare for programs. My goodness. I don't know how many folks uh, have been following along with S.E. Mae Washington Williams uh, in the book club, her memoir, Dear Senator. Whew, I cannot believe we weren't even supposed to be reading this book. I wanted to read a totally different book. I had already given out the title and everything. I was excited, looking forward to it. The Palm Beach Murder. That was the book that we were going to read. Cow Bell. And we literally switched the day before the book club because of the conduct of suspected race soldier J. Russell Hawkins. And we switched and read Dear Senator. And I mean, wow, there are very few times in our book club where we've had a book that produced so many guests uh, and other programs and what have you. Uh, we had Dr. Hutchison, speaking of suspected race soldier, stormed off. Remember that? We were supposed to be talking about uh, Nella Larson. Uh, I said Zachariah Walker. I had been saying that the whole time. Like, man, uh, because she starts, people who haven't been listening, black male who was lynched in Pennsylvania, not the Deep South, in Pennsylvania, very close to Philadelphia, lynched in 1911 burned him and castrated all the rest you know and she talks about because she grew up in the same area so she talks about as he may how this event how it impacted her even though it happened more than a decade before she was born I go to the library before to research because I hadn't heard about Zachariah Walker let's do some research Dennis B. Downey is the white man who co-authored uh, the book about the lynching of Zachariah Walker no crooked death and even that title has significance but Mr. Downey he will be with us on Monday uh, and it's beautiful all the way we are ending Dear Senator this coming Thursday and that was how the book began with the lynching of Zachariah Walker so full circle uh, metaphor we will wrap things up and uh, yeah I'm excited we'll get to learn a little bit people in the Pennsylvania area if we have any listeners if you grew up Philadelphia have connections to that area you should know about the lynching of Zachariah Walker because that was a huge case for the time period uh, lots of folks were talking about it covering it all over the country all over the world to some degree uh, at that time period so that'll be Monday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, we'll have Dennis B. Downey white man uh, on the program to discuss the lynching of Zachariah Walker and because the experts on racism white supremacy when I told him oh yeah we learned about the lynching reading Essie Mae Washington Williams memoir and he says oh of course I'm working with one of her offspring on her memoir and writing and telling about you know everything with Strom Thurmond and blah 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 and all the rest of it not ignorant about racism. Anywho, so that's Monday. We will be here also on Wednesday. Now, I have said for a minute, white guests only, no exceptions. I'm violating my code. I said, now, hey, if we can get O.J. Simpson, that is one. Anthony Broadwater. Daryl Howard, too, is black male. He was accused of 
raping in North Carolina, falsely accused. Uh, the same white prosecutor, Mike Nifong, Nifong, uh, from the Duke Lacrosse case, had him in prison for all those years, and he didn't even do anything. I would love to get him on the program as well. But other than that, white guests only. Now, workplace racism. We have the program every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. In my view, there are not enough constructive resources with regards to labor, things that non-white people should know that would help them solve problems and avoid some of the difficulties in the workplace. I come across a report this week. It's titled, When Thriving Requires Effortful Surviving, Delineating Manifestations and Resource Expenditure Outcomes of Microaggressions for Black Employees. Now, that is a lot of garbledygook. This was like one of those academic published reports. I first learned about this where they just wrote it out for the lay people like, oh, man, anti-black racism in the workplace. Danielle King is a non-white female, black female specifically. But I thought, hmm, this report was just released. Let's see if it has some constructive information, because I think this is something we should be talking about regularly. What's happening in the workplace? What can be done? Are there other resources? She said, let's do it. Wednesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Come with questions. You can present some of your own situations. Maybe she'll have some tips and or suggestions. At minimum, we'll go through her report because she talks a lot about specific abuse of black people in the workplace. So that's Wednesday. Uh, and anyone who is confused when does the cows come on? How can I participate? All of that. We will be on every day this week. Once we get through Sunday for the upcoming week, I'll say new week starting on Monday. We'll be on every day except for Tuesday. Same time all the way through 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific till we get to Saturday and it's 9 p.m. So very easy. All you have to do 8 p.m. Click check. Let's just see what they're talking about. Doesn't even matter. You can figure out what the conversation is after you get there. Monday, first up will be Dennis B. Downey, the lynching of Zachariah Walker. Now, uh, let's see. Listener supported counter racist radio. Invest if you think the cows is constructive. You can hit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Enormous gratitude to all of the investors who have contributed over the years uh, and particularly over the last two plus years with all of the pandemic and inflation and stress that we have all lived with. Man, where you could have been investing in hand sanitizer, toilet paper, gas, water, lots of resources as opposed to Gus T's foolishness. Hopefully we have been especially constructive the past two years 13 years plus in general uh, when you hit the blog PayPal button top right corner you'll see the links directly beneath for PayPal cash app and Venmo uh, the cash app address is cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows uh, again huge thanks to all the folks who've invested uh, the wish list also linked is on Amazon under Gus T. Renegade. Much obliged, all the folks who have grabbed an item or three over the past decade plus. 
Uh, let's see. Getting to some of the reports that we heard today specifically. Uh, they had the segment. Now, I included a visual aid. They had the segment on Cree Miles, victim of white supremacy, racism, black female. NPR was promoting her Instagram, always black. And I believe that's three words would so be always black. Right. I thought that was such a. I'm not saying constructive. In fact, I'll leave out the descriptor. But it's not constructive, which was, wow, really promoting reading, reading of black authors. And you didn't think it was constructive? No, I did not think it was constructive. I would have to spend some time now. How what would I use to describe? And I I will add my own extra context. So this is Gus T, victim of white supremacy, not regarded by anyone at all, shouldn't be in a system of racism section they're talking to miss miles about her efforts with uh the publishing white woman they didn't specify that but the white female dominated publishing industry book publishing industry gus t facilitating a book club for over a decade reading books from authors white and non-white from all over the world and even talking to many of those authors. I am not thought of as a literary critic, not well regarded by black people. In fact, black people have written in who listen to the book club and say, oh my gosh, Gusty hates black authors. All of that for added context. Now that's it. Before I even get into what they actually said in the segment, I saw it because there was a lot of visual information. I posted the video. They have a YouTube, I guess, promo for the always black Instagram and podcast and all their other efforts to promote black authors. There was a video posted that's like 60 seconds long. I click on the video. That's why they post it. And so it's got black females gyrating, which I think Dr. Welsing, the grandsister, she did say something about, hey, let's cut out all that dancing. They don't need to do the Charleston and the funky chicken and everything else. Let's be serious. Especially if we're going to have all these Jerry Sanduskies and Boy Scouts and child rapists, Jay Strom Thurman. Yeah, maybe we should think twice about all the gyrating, but whatever. So they have all these black females gyrating. Read a book, read a book, black author, blah, blah, blah. Then they have a black male with gold teeth and he's holding Isabel Wilkerson's case now again I know I'm a coon I know I'm not respected but we did read Isabel Wilkerson's case I said that's in my top 10 even though I do give it the side eye because hey we've had a book club so long we also read Isabel Wilkerson's case worse or now it's second worst book ever and I wrote a review for case a very detailed review for why that book is so deliberately lame not even accurate so they have a black male and he has to pull his lip like literally take his thumb and his pointer finger and pull his bottom lip down as far as he can to brandish his gold teeth as he's holding a hardback copy of the warmth of other sons now like i said i think that's a great book but 
I have no idea what a gold tooth black male has to do with the warmth of other sun. Like, did we miss that? I remember Dr. Robert Pershing Foster. I remember them driving across country and they couldn't find a bathroom to stop at. I remember they had the strike on the train. Uh, I remember Ida Mae Gladney almost being raped by a white man in Chicago. Like, it's a whole lot of things. I remember about the warmth of other suns. I don't remember nothing about gold teeth wearing black males. Okay, we continue. Now, even you don't have to watch the whole video. The screenshot that they have at NPR that was enough for me to start questioning right there because I even debated like do I even want to play this that's why I said no did you think this was constructive absolutely not for a lot of reasons they had a picture and it featured four individuals two on top two photos of two people on the top two photos of people on the bottom again I posted this on my Facebook page if you want to see it three of the four pictures looked no confusion, no ambiguity. You would think these are all black females. These three photos, nothing odd, strange where you would have any second thoughts. And I mean, certainly with all the confusion today, you might want to ask to be sure, but they would all look like black females. One picture. Beard. Appears that the person might have a dress on. Blue locks. I'm not against any of these things. I don't think anyone should be mistreated for any of these things. However, we are in a system of white supremacy racism. Uh, we read talk about books. They didn't have Dr. Tommy J. Curry's The Man Not. That was one book that they did not have on display. They had Ta-Nehisi Coates, which we also read in the book club between the world and me. We read that. I said also that book is trash. Not that, you know, <laughs> hey, I'm already accused of hating black authors. So that'll be two that you can put up on the trash list. Gus T says that are very popular. Hmm. Cased and between the world and me. And then you can go in the book club. Why does Gus think these books are trash? Anyway, for me, you have one clearly identifiable black male in this 60 second montage of a video and he has to brandish his gold teeth. I'm not against anyone with gold teeth. More power to you. Shout to old dirty bastard. That is a very common perception of black males. Like, is that the only way we can conceptualize of black males? Some gangster thug hip hop, maybe raping black guy with gold teeth. That's the only way we can even appeal to the black male. And then what am I to make of? As I said, the blue locks beard looks like this person is, might be wearing a dress. Like I can't even identify now. I mean, hey, this is all ways black. I'm very aware you have black people who identify as gay and transgender and all the rest. Totally fine. But wow. We have a black male with gold teeth, question mark, and then gyrating black females. It was lots of question marks around like written beyond the book choice, like whatever you put it up, whatever you want. Also, I would add the only race is white. Black is not a race. I know that is also really unpopular. 
super unpopular, which just shows the power of white supremacy racism. I don't brag. We don't have a book club where we got to read black authors. That is not the case at all. We have read many black authors in the book club. Gil Scott Heron's autobiography, Asada Shakur, Malcolm X, Coretta Scott King, many, Essie Mae Washington, lots of black authors. However, love, we were supposed to be reading. We were supposed to be reading the Palm Beach murder written by a white man, Cowbell. Really, the goal, in my view, for reading is about learning, not bragging about black people or bragging on black authors. Learning, hopefully learning how we can replace white supremacy with justice immediately. All of that said, now, if that does all of that, uh, her efforts, Miss Miles, VGQ, Victims Guarantee Qualified, uh, if they're able to promote more reading, great although i still even would because they said penguin random house they're involved if this ends up promoting where a whole lot of people read books like between the world and me and cased and the hate you give well i already know where that's going we just have more confusion i would have been way more excited if they had as i said the man not the isis papers urugu the code book then it's oh wow okay we are making some progress but I can't even figure out if I'm looking at a male or a female. Absolutely not. I think this is just more confusion. Next, I could be wrong. You can check out the photo. And if I'm just ignorant, confused, maybe I need glasses. You can look at the photo, the image that they have and see what do you make of the person with the blue locks glasses? Can you pick out? Are you looking at a male? Are you looking at a female? Next. Mm -mm -mm. The that segment was deliberately followed by the BBC's report on Karen Jean-Pierre being selected as the new press secretary for the White House. Now, that one is a whole lot of different ways. But in my view, same thing, because that's another cowbell. I don't care where her parents were born. I don't really care where she was born. I know some folks, the ADOS segment, right? Like, oh my gosh, she's taking a job and that's what they do. And they pick all these black people that were born outside the U.S. Saying that I think I said yesterday, Negras is Negras. The thing that I'm paying attention to. Oh man, so we got it again. Katanji Brown Jackson, Cowbell. Jean, make sure I get it right. Corinne Jean-Pierre cowbell and we got more of the sexual confusion she her partner is cnn's suzanne malvo now that's another one you can check because i could be confused but suzanne malvo to me looks like someone who would be accepted as white or at least could be as i said out of the care non-white person victim of racism she was born in belgium or haiti or wherever brazil wherever she's from she's classified as not white okay the sexual confusion uh and we got this person in the tragic. Oh, lots of that being promoted. President Obama. Mm -hmm. Justice Clarence Tom. Mm -hmm. Lots of that. I see. Mm. Even Essie Mae Washington. Mm. Heavily promoted within the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, let's see. Next. 
when they were talking about uh, California uh, and the efforts uh, in West Adams, uh, they called it so-called gentrification, racial dislocation. They said scars left over from the 1992 rebellion. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, did you see people who were wounded from then and they weren't treated? Did you see Reginald Denny? What do you mean scars left? Over? And then the word rebellion. Like, I'm very aware. There's a lot. I feel the same way about that as I do about enslaved. If I'm a slave, just call me a slave. We don't need to pretty that up and try to give me some what they call agency and all the rest of it. Just call me a slave if that's true. Uh, I'm not. I don't even know what that means. Rebellion. I'm very cool. Just call it a riot. and Let's keep uh, moving. Next. Uh, they said uh, they're recognizing the decades that have passed since Vincent Vincent Chin, non-white male. Uh, so-called Asian was killed uh, in Detroit, Michigan. We talked about his murder wow, when we first came on the air. Frank Wu was a guest on the program. We talked about his book Yellow, and that was one of the uh, main, or not main, major, major subjects, uh, points that we talked about when he was a guest on the program many years back. But again, just pointing out the masters of anti-Asian violence and a lot of what they, the red, racist rhetoric that was being spewed at the time of his murder, Vincent Chin, same thing we're hearing now. Uh, let's see. We had a parent. I'm stopping. I played. I normally will have like news reports or an audio report. It's very rare. Why I will have just an, a, a written report being read, whether I read it or whatever. Rarely feel like that might not be as engaging but the report where they were discussing what was happening in the school system in Wisconsin specifically they had allegations that some of the black children said hey some of our white buddies at school are saying you know Kyle Rittenhouse is awesome they think he's great they're so glad that he was acquitted and then they said hey you know what if they had another one of those Black Lives Matters protests I'd get a car and ram right through them That was one because if I had been able to find a news report where they talked about it, we would have heard that. But I couldn't find it. And I said, oh, man, we got to play that one. We do have people who live in Wisconsin or even have connections to Wisconsin. Robin San Diego. We had a parent write in last week because it was so many different school reports. We had a parent write in last week. She said. Hi, Gus. Today I was listening to the compensatory call in. It sounds like children need a code in school. I just spoke to my oldest daughter about someone name calling her. I suggested that she stop and takes out her phone. Press record and ask the student to repeat what they said or using a notepad to write it down the name of the student time and what was said. She told me that white children in her school called their friends in her school nigger. I told her to stay away from those children. They are definitely suspected racist and dangerous. I think kids should go to school and learn a code to deal with racism. However, I may consider the age they go to school. 
may want to delay it until first grade so they can better understand or excuse me so that they can be better trained to face teachers and students black children will eventually become adults and find out about racism in the workplace school can be their training ground for work attempted parents need to prepare them what are your thoughts thanks for the programming vegan rd now that's a great one right there preparing the children to be healthy so they can miss miss all those health issues and what have you eating lots of produce vegetables but i mean that is so critically important because there were so many reports they talked about in chicago and giving out font like i never even heard of such like what you're giving out like tickets fines in school <laughs> like up oh, you're late that's $50 fine yep yep oh you pencil's not sharp $20 fine you forgot your gym shorts $30 fine <laughs> like what what is going <sighs> Chicago and that report specifically it sounded like there was another heap of black male privilege because they said they look at these young boys these black men I said well I thought they were I thought they were at school that's they said they were at school <laughs> these are these are not men. These are children, black boys. And it is ticket, 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 ticket. Oh, hmm. Feel like I've heard that before. Uh, but all of that to say, having a black child, all of this needs to be thought about way in, before you get to the bedroom. What, are we just going to send our child off kindergarten and, you know, have them go with these little race soldiers and racist teachers and racist classmates and, you know, do the best you can. I made it through. You got it, too. What is that? Is that the best that we're going to do? We're going to bring a black child just for that. Have their hair yanked out of their scalp. They said it was a one year old and they said, dang, this just was alleged to have happened days ago they didn't say two years ago we found some musty report from 1968 they said dang this just happened this spring that's what we're hopping in the bed to to produce throwaway child for that that right there if we're really serious about replacing white supremacy with justice immediately like oh no there will never be that segment about mental health and they talked about how this has been bad for a long time and suicide and all the rest of it they didn't even include like so how much worse is this for black children non-white children victims of white supremacy how much worse is it for them I deliberately followed that segment with the segment on the boy scouts decades remember matter of fact they had when all this started coming out over the past few years they had a report where they said hey white people knew about all of the child rape in the boy scouts for years that was an institutional secret where they had notebooks and files where they hid all this information and had been doing so for decades I didn't even know when they were detailing the information about the lawsuit and the settlement financial details the church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints is also in this for like a quarter of a billion dollars for their 
the religion of white supremacy and that sort of thing right there. Now we can be casual, Dr. Welsing, throw away children and just reckless and hop in bed. And then the person that we have these children with, we're not even on speaking terms in a month or a year. And you got all of this. They're going to school and oh, yeah, I'm gonna run my car through the Black Lives Matter protesters, niggers, niggers. <laughs> niggers. You heard the one they said they had the, the video where the white child had a hood on. And they said, who don't you like niggers? We can have fun. Do all that gyrating. Folks talk about that. What's all that gyrating preparation for? I wonder. Hmm. We can do all that running around with sex and spending all this time talking like we have so much fun and love each other and all that. Or we can be really serious. Hey, that day is done. Universal man, universal woman. There will never be a black child to have that experience. We are going to have extensive conversation to make sure we do the best that we can train. That was the word that was used training our child. If they ever are in a school setting, we know they have been adequately trained. They know all about racism, white supremacy as best we can. What to expect. They already know what to say. Somebody's called you a nigger. They put on a Klan hood, whatever. They are ready to roll. None of this is a surprise. I'm not caught off guard. I'm not stunned. None of it. My child is not going to school and coming home. What happened to your hair? That's never going to happen. That's being serious about replacing white supremacy with justice. Other things I could get to. We'll chat on those as we go. I guess the one thing they were talking about the school like hey you can include this they said in Chicago the best city ever out of 110 teachers seven black that same type of math that we heard yesterday remember that they, they were talking about the all the progress they made in in acquiring hiring Negro coaches in the NFL they said that they had three Negro head coaches in 2005 2003 excuse me now in 2002 they have five out of 110 teaching positions at the school in Chicago seven are for black teachers and when they went to go and report hey we, we don't feel heard we don't feel ah, get out of here we got seven too many of y'all said that from the beginning anywho uh for this broadcast I kindly request if we could not use metaphors analogies uh, they were pretty rife this uh, week as they are for most weeks um, the one there were a few that I wrote down but the one that I'll pick they when they were talking about the stress of children in the midst of all of this they said before they were saying that all this gobbledygook and saying that children are having anxiety and stress and they need to be diagnosed and all that that oh we just got a generation of sensitive snowflakes I'd never even heard that phrase before I'm like what sensitive snowflakes what's a non-sensitive like do you have an aggressive snowflake <laughs> like what what and the whiteness 
Snowflake? Snowflake is the name of the albino gorilla that they made a, a fool and, and a hoot about. Uh, talk about albino affairs. Uh, Snowflake was in uh, the most recent Planet of the Apes, I believe. They've made all kinds of like documentaries. I was trying to find a book so we could read about Snowflake in the book club. But we talked about Doc. We talked about Snowflake with Dr. Welsing. Um, in addition to snow and all that, but I've never even heard that sensitive snowflake. And it might be a reason that I have not heard that metaphor very frequently. Anywho, uh, for this broadcast, uh, race soldiers, they use words deliberately to be deceptive. Uh, our job, attempted counter-racists, uh, to counter that one way is to be accurate precise with the use of words for this broadcast if we could avoid analogies metaphors similes uh, if you need more time to pick your words that is always allowed uh, but I will give out reminders uh, about those metaphors much obliged matter of fact last thing I'll get in I'll give out the number one more time seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate the last thing that I will get in they taught we had a number of segments talking about uh, agriculture California Minnesota black people trying to farm history of black land theft which is exactly where we ended Tulsa Oklahoma as well uh, but when they talked about the racism that black farmers faced uh, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture was systemic and not giving them help and not having resources and all the rest of it. Man, oh, man, I think uh, at least two times, maybe more than that. But when Dr. Martin Kevorkian has been a guest on the program, oh, it happened even most recently. He was here. We talked about King Richard before the slap. We talked about the film Die Hard, the great Bruce Willis having all those medical problems now. Uh, we talked about that movie and the scene where the black male, uh, Argyle, is in the limousine. He's talking about sexual intercourse, going to Vegas and drinking liquor and all the rest of it. I was reminded the great Neely Fuller Jr. He said Earl Butts. He quoted Earl Butts, his old potty mouth. He said, remember, Earl Butts got fired from the Nixon administration. What did he say? If we have, well, I was going to say cover them out, but you shouldn't because they got to be trained for racism. So this is the problem. Earl Butts, what, is it, what was his opinion of black people? Earl Butts said, I don't care about these niggers. Only thing that they want, loose shoes, tight pussy, and a warm place to shit. Earl Butts isn't just some lame, uncouth, vulgar, illiterate white ruffian who grew up in the caves or something. Earl Butts was Secretary of Agriculture until he said that to a journalist and had to resign. Secretary of Agriculture. He would be the person, or at least one of the people you would be talking about when it's dang we don't have all these black farmers and they don't have land and they didn't get help that would be one context of white supremacy if you take about five minutes to share your thoughts that would be grand uh, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up proceed 
Hello. Yeah, be heard. Greetings, Irie. Yes, ma'am. Greetings. Hotep Gus. Hotep to everyone on the line and everyone that's going to tune in later. So, uh, I have a question to lead. I received a, a lapel pin today from a, a doctor, non-white Asian female um, of internal medicine at a, a private school that's doing some uh, community Okay, so let me think about this. What am I trying to say? She is a doctor and she teaches something regarding internal medicine, which is what her concentration is or her uh, what she specializes in at a school, a medical school, and that those students are trying to do more, excuse me, within the community, like as far as treating people for free, meaning black people for free. Um, and I had heard of this school already because of a nonprofit I worked with and had to separate from because of their sexual confusion agenda. But nevertheless, so she, I end up meeting this lady, um, by happenstance, and she gives me a pen that says racism is a public health issue, and I'm just wondering is that a metaphor? I don't know. if it's, It is a public health issue, but that seems a little bit uh, like it's um, I don't know. I don't know how to take it. So I wanted to ask about that first. Um, and I had a chance to talk to this doctor about a program where they were giving away so-called free cell phones, I'm using air quotes right now, to non-white black people um, for participating and getting treated by these students. And when I did my research, um, I told everyone in the email uh, thread that it was a, a very sophisticated data collection program um, by the SCC and I can't remember the other three alphabet combination of government, but it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't disclosed. And I'm, I don't know how, I guess I'm smarter than I think how I was able to get to the bottom of it, but I did about 30 minutes of research and found out and brought it to their attention. And I said, you know, uh, you all are concerned about building trust among, you know, these, these black people who are reluctant to be treated by you all and you don't all need to know that you're pushing them into, you know, a data collection program by receiving these phones. And she wasn't aware of it, but the people that were aware of it, I guess, you know, they, they either knew or, I don't know, it's just more injustice where you know, always subject to some type of experimentation, um, some kind of way, some kind of uh, of data collection, whether we know it or not, um, in exchange for something that we need, you know, sometimes or some sort of relief, and they make it seem compensatory when it's not. Um, something else interesting that happened, it's not that serious, but I guess it's serious for me. I was signing up 
to get a SAMS number. I can't remember what the acronym stands for anymore, but it's a number that you get when you want to try to get government contracts because I'm a victim of racism and <laughs> I could use some money right now. You know what I'm saying? Like times are very hard and I consider doing uh, like municipal contracts or like graphic design or whatever. But in order to do that, you got to have a DUNS number and then you got to get a SAMS number and all of other stuff. So, when I um, went to sign up, I'm going through the process, and it was like, okay, well, do you have your NATO whatever, whatever number? I'm like, wait, hold up. NATO? Like, wait a minute. I'm about to oblige myself, like, to the North Atlanta. Wait, wait, Atlantic. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not about to do this. Like, why do I have to further indenture myself into an agreement white people made with each other? Y'all didn't ask me anything about this. You didn't ask black people anything about this. And yet I have to do this in order to get this number, in order to get another number to try to compete to do business. And I just stopped. And I'm like, okay, so I, I guess I'm not doing that. And I'm kind of, you know, it's like, wow, with the racism, just people like white people and other people that are identified with their, I guess, stance in life get mad. I've had conversations with people that are white identified, like, why should we pay reparations? Why should we do this? Why should we do that? Like, bruh, look at this. In order to do business, Black people, in order for us to do business with these public corporations, we need to literally obligate ourselves to a treaty that we don't have any of the full details to without a good amount of due diligence and research. And then in the meantime, you just, you just, you know, you're not in, you're just not in the market, I guess. I just, it's so annoying to me. Um, you know, I just wanted to share that I don't really have, I didn't catch the headlines or anything, but that was it. I'm just a little miss about that. But other than that, you know, thank God for, you know, animals. I've been reading a lot about, um, birds. I like birds. I know I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just trying to invoke something like good about life. <laughs> um, you know, Exercise gives me a lot of joy, but I really like birds. And I, I think they said the 20th or the 19th is National Migratory Bird Day, which if you like birds, there you go. You're welcome. Um, I just want to, you know, say I've been taking a lot of time, a lot more time to enjoy nature. Sundays in the morning, appreciate trees, appreciate bugs and everything because it's to a point like I've just realized we're really, really, really on the brink of, of a, a change that none of us that are part of the powerless group, even the powerless white people fully know or understand. And I'm just thankful for every day that I have to experience the world as much as I can as it was intended by the creator before something happens and possibly, you know, that, that opportunity gets taken away. And that's all I want to share. Thank you very much. Okay.
much obliged, Irie. Uh, I know at least for the mental health component, like get outside if you can. I know Seattle does not have the best weather. Uh, I've said that over the years. I never brag about the Seattle weather. Like, man, we are days from Memorial Day. Went outside and literally I could see my breath. The sky is gray and the weather looks like it's going to be like this for the next week, uh, which is pretty similar to the way it was last May. But if you are someplace where it is spring weather and it is warming and you get to see the sun from time to time, get outside, get some fresh air and go to the what lake beach, whatever it is. Go do some hiking, you could do some yoga outside or just do some breathing exercises. But that is so much better than being cooped up inside and watching God awful television or whatever else if you have some offspring definitely get outside get some exercise you all can talk and take in the sunshine uh but definitely uh, lots of us have been under strain and we just talked about that yesterday too black people being entrepreneurs and the confusion and time wasting in my view that is frequently very deliberate even things like that where hey if i had known i was going to need this nato number prior to then as you due diligence and all that maybe i could have checked out and all of that and shared it with some folks on the cows maybe some of us could have researched but they just spread like what what nato <laughs> very very common as she said in order to get, get business contracts and all of that you got to have a nato number and this and that and many times non-white people they make that whole process very cumbersome not a coincidence at all neutralizing workplace racism every friday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific uh let's see other folks hand up that we missed totally if you have commentary to share good evening maddie heard yes sir yes uh good evening to the host mr renegade and to all the participants of the Dallas program Excuse me. Uh, I'd like to comment on um, the um, Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, compensation, uh, I guess, uh, trial, uh, however they're doing the legal proceedings. Um, it seems interesting that there's only three, according to the, uh, uh, the lawsuit, there's only three surviving um, uh, members of that community, uh, and they're waiting until this moment to begin uh, some type of uh, compensation if, you know, to find out if there will be any, any compensation. Um, I would wonder if they were to find out the names or uh, other identities of other people who have actually uh, uh, died, perished, if they would compensate their families. It seems like that would be the just thing to do if there was excuse me, going to be some type of compensation for the losses that these people incurred? And what would the compensation be based on? Would it be based on the loss of life? Would it be based on the loss of property? Would it be based on some type of displacement? Um, also, the, uh, the teenagers in the high school who are being fined for uh, misbehavior, I'm wondering if that's some type of monetary fine, and if it is a monetary fine, what happens if the students 
don't pay those monetary fines. I know that in some schools you are not allowed to graduate or participate in extracurricular activities if you have outstanding uh, fines um, above a certain amount uh, or even uh, to not be able to graduate with your class if you have uh, outstanding fines. Um, and it seems like they were remarking that some of these young people had uh, were economically disadvantaged uh, as well as not as well as being non-white. So it seems like it's uh, a uh, a compounding um, form of punishment uh, for those young people who are not able to pay these fines. I'm not sure how much these fines might be. Um, and the uh, wanted to comment also on the uh, the farmer in uh, the I guess the Northwest who had his land. Uh, uh, taken away or lost his land somehow. Uh, that wasn't really explained how he lost his land because it seemed as if he was very prosperous at um, the beginning. And due to the uh, racist treatment he had received as a result of his, um, I guess, his prosperity, it seemed like that's why, it seems like to me, that one of the reasons why he would have been targeted uh, by the racist um, for abuse. Uh, it's, it's very sad, it seems, that he walked away from his family altogether, I guess due to the sadness of or the um, depression of uh, losing all that he had worked for. Uh, that seemed like it was such a, uh, a wasteful uh, event him to walk away from his family, then not hear from him again. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I would be interested in finding out more about his story, what occurred, what, uh, what um, motivated him to uh, leave and go out on his own without any of his family members. Um, and one item I would want to report on is that in... Um, Brooklyn, New York, there appeared to have been a 13-year-old uh, black male who was sexually assaulted by uh, an adult male. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and it seems like that's one of the stories, a type of story that is very seldom reported on, um, that uh, black males as uh, old as 13 and some uh, reports uh, have, in the past, uh, adultified uh, some of those 13-year-old uh, children, saying, calling them young men. Uh, and, and many times, um, people tend to um, adultify these young boys, calling them young men. And I don't believe that that would really be um, the bet in the best interest of that child to describe him in that manner uh, as having been attacked by uh, a, an adult man. Uh, in that case, I, uh, there's one other report I wanted to make, and I, I don't remember what it is. But um, oh, uh, the, the water. Um, 
in uh, California. Uh, from what I understand, grapes are grown for wine consumption and you know for fruit food consumption in uh, parts of California, as well as and that consumes a lot of uh, water, as well as uh, um, other foods such as almonds and so forth. So it just seems very interesting to me that um, the area where the black people are allowed to live, the water, the groundwater, is uh, so horribly co contaminated uh, by these um, chemicals that people can't use it and they have to resort to using bottled water. It seems the, uh, the person in that story um, said that it was a crisis and an emergency. And that's something that I've only heard on, on this uh, on this program, in the CALS program. I've not heard that in any national news that uh, people in parts of California are being deprived of uh, drinking water or uh, of water that's clean enough to, to use. Um, that's all I wanted to report for now. Uh, also, I would like to um, be known as... Uh, um, I apologize. Uh, I'll just go ahead and uh, uh, mute my line. Thank you for listening and have a good evening. Oh, right on. Uh, if you think of uh, your handle, uh, you know, how you want us to recognize you when you call in, let us know. Try to make sure we get that to identify people. I'm a little uncouth with names at times, but, you know, victim. Uh, much obliged, sir. Um, I, hey, Dr. Welsing said for years uh check be informed about what's happening locally nationally globally in the system of white supremacy racism gusty i have shamelessly bragged about seattle for many many years now right but i love california i lived in california for years like i'm mad we're supposed to have a retreat in california i was so looking forward to that that was before the rona even to the oh anyway uh, I love California, so I do try to keep, uh, you know, abreast of things that are happening. California is not that far uh, from Seattle. You could drive to California and be there. To, well, maybe not today, but you could be there early. We could be there for a really early breakfast, uh, at least northern California. Um, that water situation that he was talking about in the different area, like California, period. Gus does love California, but that would be at the top of my list. Like, yee, I don't know if I want to move back like that water problem in California is massive. Like that is going to be a problem. Like, oh my! Like the whole state probably for uh, decades to come if they don't have an earthquake or whatever else uh, to deal with. But I mean, if you are a non-white person and a California resident, like that would have to be a serious part of the plan. Like water, water tank, water storage, like something. Because I mean, in fact, it reminded me. The summer of 2015, unless my memory is bad, seven years could be. But I think that was the summer of McKinney, Texas, right? And they had the black female. Uh, she was mauled, sexually assaulted down in Texas at the swimming pool, right? Remember that? I think that was 2015 summer. So same summer as Dylan Storm Roof. I made a YouTube video talking about the history of black people being mauled at swimming pools all over the world, really. At the end of that video... At this sense, so this would be like July 2015. 
the L.A. Times, like I said, this is a this has been a problem. Just water, period, in the entire state of California. It's going to be an even bigger problem as it we move forward. They were saying in 2015, they had a picture of a white man. And the title of the article was in California. I'm paraphrasing from memory uh, in California. Some say that water is not an equal right or we all don't have equal access to water. It was something phrased in that manner. This person wasn't standing in a grape vineyard. They weren't at an orchard or anything else. They weren't out, you know, growing produce and lettuce and strawberries. This was a white man at a swimming pool at his house saying, hey, we do not all have equal access to water. That would be the type of thing that I would be thinking about. Now, you have white people saying, hey, I'm going to take all the water that I want. Fill up my pool, take my shower, water my lawn, whatever. Black people in California who don't have drinking water. And this this is the same week Essie May in the book club was saying, oh, my gosh, California is amazing. I love it here. Racial. She used the word. She said it was a racial paradise. I reckon Uh, the other two quick points that we'll get to the other callers with regards to Tulsa. I don't even know in terms of the compensation, how you would do all that. Like you were saying, compensate the relatives and all that. What I also thought was super important in that segment. They said as many as 300 were killed. It may have been more than 300, but I thought that was important because for many, many years, the official death toll was not 300 it was like 10 30 people died something like that and just eh, yeah the negros say you know maybe it was 300 400 people eh. what is this old neely fuller who was born in oklahoma 1929 what are these old negros now they don't know anything they're stupid there was about 20 people killed and that's about it and you know whatever they would probably rape someone anyway it was only recently, like during the Rona recent, where they found that mass burial site. And it was, oh, my God, it looks like they did kill about 300, 400 negros. That's one like that should not just be an old casual. Now, I guess we got to go ahead and say that they did kill 300 people. Eh. The Chicago school, you said uh, you were talking about, man, I wonder if these folks can pay. This is at uh, ProPublica. They did, I guess, a joint investigation with Chicago the Chicago Tribune about all this I'm just reading a little bit Christian 16 this is a black man 16 years old uh, was required to appear at a ticket hearing in Bradley on a January afternoon like all of this like (laughs) they call it school to prison pipeline you have ticket hearings for 16 year olds for a school violation like you don't have to clean the erasers you don't have detention you don't have to stay after school you got a ticket hearing. They continue ticket hearing in Bradley on a January afternoon. Most of the people ordered to attend that day were high school students, and most of them, including Christian, had been ticketed for possession of vaping devices. We just talked about that last week. The hearing officer ordered Christian to pay one hundred seventy five dollars. fine plus a $50 hearing fee and then asked if he would pay that day 
or if he needed time. Time in prison, you mean? Oh, no. Uh, take some time, Christian said. He is paying the fine off with money he earned at his job at Little Caesars. We just talked about them last week. Remember that white woman came in? You out of crazy bit? Nigga, oh, ah, she popped him upside his head, remember? Continuing. They didn't even arrest her immediately. Continuing. Uh, by early May, he had paid $113, his mother said. If students don't pay their fines quickly, Bradley is one of many Illinois municipalities that have sent the debt collection agencies or to a program run by the state comptroller's office that deducts money from tax refunds or payroll checks. I'll say that again. So if you're going to have a black child, there should be like really long discussion, maybe even why do we want to have a black child for this? Are we serious about countering all this? Are we serious about training our child to understand and neutralize all of this? If the answer is no, if you're a little shaky, eh, I may feel committed to this for a year, a month, three months. If it's not, I'm committed to this for the rest of my life. If I'm strong, firm and live to 101, sign me up. If that's not the answer, then maybe you should reconsider producing black children for this. Make sure they're on time for their ticket hearing at 16. Much obliged, sir. Other folks who dialed in that we have missed totally. If you have commentary, proceed. No, folks are spectating getting their thoughts together the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate if we have any folks if you were able to see the image that I was talking about with Cree Miles the always black uh, that they were promoting on NPR to promote black authors and reading and all of that. If you're able to see that image, if you can decipher the individual in the top right corner, blue locks and all of that, you can help out Gus T and let me know what am I looking at? Maybe, uh, maybe you have better vision than I. Let's see. Other folks that we've missed totally. Greetings, Gus. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to the callers, listeners, and um, thanks again, Gus, for the platform. Um, just going in first on the gentrification piece, um, it was interesting how the language was changed. I noticed the first thing that was done was to change the language from gentrification to something like replacement or something to that degree that the... Um, 
the complex owner or the land developer was using instead of gentrification. And I think that was interesting as opposed to using the actual correct terminology. They kind of invent terms to to kind of like obfuscate, to move around or get around dealing with racism, which is interesting. Um, and also the fact that <laughs> just so difficult for somebody that who is non-white to move and navigate in, even in circles when you have so-called resources to avoid being um, harassed and subjugated by higher powers in that, in that aspect. And the second piece that I, I caught on to was the California one about the, um, you know, the, the water. And I thought that was interesting. I wonder if that was actually in Harriet A. Washington's A Terrible Thing to Waste. I think that was interesting because maybe there are some aspects even that, I mean, because she covered so much information, maybe there's, there's so much that she probably can't even cover herself. But that's another aspect of just living in that area. And I say that because my significant other, even though um, we live on the East Coast right now, she's actually from California. So that, that is has been something that's been daunting for us in case we ever decide to move out there. Um, the other thing, always black podcasts, I did appreciate one line that was said there that really stood out. And that was the line about she was reading the bluest eye, Toni Morrison, and there were certain parts that struck her and made her realize, especially as a person that's non-white, that she's not, quote-unquote, alone in her way of thinking or being. And I think that's a very powerful situation and a powerful feeling in itself when it comes to reading. And I have to admit I felt the same way when I read um, Invisible Man. (laughs) And I have to confess... I didn't read Invisible Man realizing exactly what I was reading. I had a small indication, but never understood the ramifications of what I was reading until years later. Um, But there were many important scenes and instances in the book that, again, made me, had a trigger, so to speak. I, I don't know if that's a metaphor, but I think it might be. But just sparked a kind of thought in my mind in regards to that. Um, that being said, that is all for me today. Um, hope everybody's taking it easy for their weekend as best as they can in the system of racism, white supremacy. I will meet my line. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, let's see. Book Club, The Bluest Eye, Tony Morrison. That was the second book we read in the book club. Uh, Harriet A. Washington, we did medical apartheid and a terrible thing to waste she may have covered some of that i have to go back to double check to see what she talked about um and then invisible man gusty's favorite yes we read that one too lots lots in the book club uh and gusty's memory some say it still is pretty bad but it is not exactly terrible 
Uh, so the report that I was talking about, California, he said his uh, attempted wife, that's her part of the world where she's born. So I was off by a month. I said July 2015. It was June 2015. But I did start saying summer 2015. So you'll kill me for being three weeks off. And the title. Rich Californians balk at limits. We're not all equal when it comes to water again. So this was actually days, literally, because the McKinney incident where she was slammed at the pool. That was in June 2015. And this was the same week as Dylan Storm Roof. That was June 17. This is June 13. So three days from a title again, rich Californians balk at limits. We are not all equal when it comes to water and the image. What I said, if they didn't have him out, his strawberries, almonds, avocados, the vineyard. No, no, no. Luxury pool was man's best friend. The caption for the photo reads Riley, a Labrador retriever, plays in a pool at a residence in Rancho Santa Fe. That's that's not exactly where the Negras with the fertilizer leaching into their water supply. This is not exactly where they live. The first paragraph or I'm not I'm just going to give you the second paragraph. It says, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to give you the first two. We'll do it that way. Drought or no. Steve Uhas resents the idea that it is somehow shameful to be a water hog metaphor. If you can pay for it, he argues, you should get your water. People should not be forced to live on property with brown lawns, golf on brown courses, or apologize for wanting their gardens to be beautiful. Uhas fumed recently on social media we pay significant property taxes based on where we live he added in an interview and no we're not all equal when it comes to water that's the sort of statement that I would have like plastered in bold face print any non-white person you're thinking about moving to California. Any or if you live in California already. Anywho, uh, again, and this was published three days or I guess it'd be four, four days before Dylan Storm Roof, South Carolina. Other folks that we missed. Can I answer your question about the? Uh, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to answer your question about the always black. Oh, let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. So um, this appears to be a sexually confused male. Um, to me, then again, oh God. All right. So at first glance, it looks like a man, but. Uh, it could be a woman with a beard. Could be. Um, hashtag hormone. Um, yeah. That uh, on the Instagram I'm looking at. They win. 
that were being nominated for the Webby Award in the video series diversity and inclusion category. So either way, yes, the the aim was to promote sexual confusion, and now I'm confused because I thought I was looking at a man, but it could be a woman. So now I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know anymore. <laughs> That's what I said. Confusion. And I said, so I, I'm not saying that this person should be mistreated, but this is black. This is what I'm supposed to be black and proud about. I can't even identify who am I looking at. Again, I'm not saying anybody should be mistreated, but I mean, all of this promotion of gender confusion. I don't know what to do with my genitals. I don't know what gender I am and all the rest of it. All of that just further strengthens the system of white supremacy racism period they've been very successful with all of their confusion and this that's why i said when i saw it immediately i didn't even hear the report my first inclination was i'm not gonna play this at all then i said oh no i need to play it and say something about it even when i heard that about tony morrison because hey i love tony morrison the bluest eye I love the warmth of other suns, but I do not look like I see that every day. Black people growling at a camera with gold teeth. I see that all the time. <laughs> like black people, males and females, gyrating in front of the camera. I see that all the time. Black people being confused. I don't know what to do with my genitals. I don't know what gender I am. Male, female, switches, maybe a little of both. I see that all the time. None of that is helping us towards universal man, universal woman. And again, I do not think I mean, it's James Brown and all that. We read that in SMA. I'm black and I'm proud and all that, that none of that is going to help solve the problem of white supremacy, racism, bragging about being black and emphasis on blackness. All of that supports white supremacy, racism and the notion of a race. Dare I say that's how you end up with all of the I don't like these black people because they were born in insert wherever, wherever they said uh, Kareem. Jean-Pierre, I think she, they said her parents were born in Haiti, so-called. Yeah, I don't like her. Mm, mm, she's not with us. That sort of thing. I'm not a member of a race. I'm a victim of racism, white supremacy. I am had by a race. Whites. I could be in there. Folks that we missed totally. looked like there were other folks who had hands up but they are being silent uh we'll give them maybe five minutes they have any thoughts they would like to share and then we will get ready to wrap up again we'll be here on so it shouldn't be i know some folks i guess newer listeners or older listeners confused whatever it is lots of reasons to be confused we will be on every day starting at the new week let's say the new week starts on monday every day except for tuesday monday uh mr downey will be here we'll talk about the lynching of zachariah walker Maybe a little bit about Essie May's book as well. Uh, Wednesday, it'll be like we have two workplace racism segments. Professor Danielle King will be with us on Wednesday. Uh, we wrap up Essie May's book Thursday, neutralizing workplace racism on Friday. And then compensatory call-in is on Saturday. Global Sunday talk will be Sunday. So every day, Monday to Sunday, with the exception of Tuesday, we will be on the air, hopefully doing something constructive 
Uh, I mean, the calendar says it's spring, but it is pretty frosty up here. If you didn't know it, you would think it is, I don't know, early winter, maybe late winter. I'm not sure. Uh, autumn, something other than almost summer. But either way, we are on our counter racist grind for May. I was going to say spring, but it just it is so far from spring weather here. Man, Whew. Uh, folks, anything else they want to make sure they get in? Anyone else see the uh, NPR report? Maybe they can help us decipher what we're looking at. Can I get it again? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, I think on first glance that that person has XY chromosomes. Uh, I don't, um, but that's just at first glance. I wouldn't really, if I were to really inspect, I might question, but at a, uh, at a glance, I, I don't think that that is a, uh, a female, but I could certainly be wrong. And also, uh, I wanted to make a, a, um, a comment about the, the farmers. I think that one of the reports was indicating that there are now about 50,000 uh, black farmers. Um, and at one point there were you know, a lot more. But I do remember that in the uh, early 70s, 60s, 50s, <clears throat> people in the uh, South, uh, or I guess people all over the place, if they had uh, a home with less, Many of those people actually didn't have extensive farms, but they did grow crops with which to feed themselves. Is one of the reasons that uh, many of those uh, folks, even though they were uh, not cash uh, rich, they were able to sustain larger families because they were able to usually um, grow crops, corn, uh, uh, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, things of that nature. Um, to uh, feed themselves and, and their families, and sometimes even uh, larger portions of the community. And that, that's all I wanted to uh, continue on. And also, uh, one more thing, please. Um, my um, handle would like, I would like my handle to be uh, Correct Intentions, which is uh, one of the goals that I strive for. Correct Intentions. Love it, love it. Very important. Uh, yeah, that that we talked about that, I think, in a number of different ways in terms of black people, that being one component of counter racism, growing your own food, produce that can help with budgeting uh, and even just with eating correctly. Like even if you, you know, just grow a few things, like you said, you don't have to have enough to go to the farmer's market and what have you not trying to make cash crops, but just enough that, hey, I grew these. Yeah, I'll eat some zucchini. I grew it. Yeah. I'm proud. I grew the squash. I'll eat it or mushroom. That's what my man was growing. Whatever, you know, just it, it could be some spices even right? oregano, basil. I love that. Especially that's great for the summertime. This would be this would be the time plant basil. You can have like pesto and pasta, pizza. It's a great ad. Great for the summertime. Like love it. And as he said, like, hey, that is one way you can supplement your budget. Work against racism, white supremacy. If you have your own produce, you don't have to be McDonald's with every thought and uber eats and all that nonsense um incidentally the the report about the black farmers in minnesota both components of it when they were talking about the black male where they stole his property and he just 
walked away, left his family and just went out to to be isolated and by himself. I have heard that frequently where it is not some deadbeat, no count, drug peddling, raping, toxic, uh, misogynistic black male uh, who, you know, is good for nothing and trifling and is not going to stay in there and try to help and support uh, his so-called family and offspring. I have heard a number of cases, even some of that is in S.E. Mae Washington Williams memoir where she talks about her husband can't get a job, doesn't get promoted. He has a law degree and can't get a job, can't get promoted and is frustrated and starts drinking like I've heard that one over and over where folks just get frustrated and being thought of as a failure and I'm not a man, which none of us are, but just can't even take it. Now, I mean, you want to talk about, I guess you could say, well, you're trifling and you should have thought of all that and blah, blah, blah. I guess. But I mean, wow, like you work, you put all that into a farm and have all that taken. I do not have offspring. And in that same report, Minnesota they talked about uh, where they talked to a different black farmer, Henry Mitchell, where he said he had farmed and what have you and took care of his family. He said he shrugged off racist slurs and insults. I don't even know what that means. I've done shoulder shrugs, right? I've done those with the uh, dumbbells, right? Exercise your, your shoulders, your trapezius muscle, all that, right? I've dealt with, I've done that, right? Shrug off a racist slur. And that this happens all the time. I submitted it. That's John Henryism. That's hypertension. That is a whole lot of poor health right there. Having people nigger this and ran, ran, ran and all that. I thought it was supposed to be Minnesota nice, right? That's what they say. Then he said he was out at a bar. Ding, ding, ding. All, you know, Gus T. What does he say at the end of every program? Sobriety would be best. And what have I said for years? One of the worst combinations in the universe whites alcohol I would not be at a bar by myself or with family members if this racist racist slurs and what have you when I'm just at the grocery store trying to go to work shoveling the snow off my driveway oh my goodness I expect all kinds of elevated terrorism once they get a little liquor in their system they said he's at the bar and some white racist threatened he and his family pulled out his gun shot the person and was acquitted now that I thought was stunning like I was thinking for sure like they stole his land or whatever whatever and he went to jail for 20 acquitted I didn't know that was in the report but I was glad we played it because again we do hear that a lot that black people are chumps and cowards and lames and all the rest of it hey lots of evidence that that's not true and regardless you have to pull out a gun for a race soldier, even if it's justified, like, ooh-wee, that is a horrible day because generally speaking, you are going to have to answer to a white person. Henry Mitchell, I even tried to see if I could find more information on that case, and I failed. I'm going to have to see if I can email the folks uh, in Minnesota to see if they can give me some of the details because I would, both of those cases, the black male who walked away and they said he just started uh, reconnecting with his family, and then Mr. Mitchell who shot a white man racist in self-defense again hey you might not be so lucky try to avoid being in places where it's going to be liquor 
and racists, individuals classified as white. Uh, any of the folks that we missed have their comment that they wanted to get in? Or yep, This is Nick over the road. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, everyone. Um, I was driving earlier. I just wanted to park and get my thoughts together. Um, I wanted to say that there's three things that I, that I do or that I tell people to do to kind of get clarity on things, and that's um, teach yourself how to be quiet, study etymology, and know the differences between you and everything else. And um, the reason why I do the silence is so that because it helps a person rest their mind and listen more. Um, the etymology is so that we could, you know, pretty much say what we mean and mean what we say. And um, and the differences. Yeah, just, just knowing the difference between you and everything else. Um, the the school with the with the nigger um being said to everybody um to the black students. Um I was parked at a truck stop and when it's a lot of trucks trying to fuel, it's a lot of chatter on the CB. And I guess this one um, white male was um, talking crazy to a black male that wouldn't move for him or whatever. And he was calling them a bunch of niggers. And when he paused, I just simply said, well, a nigger is a Caucasian from South Africa. The response was, I'm talking about the more common usage. This is what he said to me. And, um, and if, if you need more information on that, the Noah, which is 1828, just look at the word black, uh, what the word black mean, and then go to what the word, word Negro, because nigger and Negro is the same word. It's just pronounced different in different languages. And um, you'll see the correlation between that. And um, school, I say give them a voice recorder um, so they could be able to document it with a notebook, write down times, whatever things are said so they could go back to the recording and, um, and so it could be reviewed or whatnot. And having a code for them would be awesome. It would get them, it'd, you know, it would have them thinking early about the abuses that we go through um, and being silent and knowing the words. And plus, knowing that technically knowing that you're not a nigger, it, it comes with a little bit of peace to know that, you know, you, you're you not that, and more than likely they're really talking about themselves. They're just trying to pull you into a situation where they can control you. It'll help you control yourself. Um, and when it comes to uh, reparations, oh, boy. Um, I'm not, I don't know if you're familiar with a book titled um, Killer of the, Killers of the Flower Moon. It's about the Osage Indians in Oklahoma. Um, at one point in time, when they were moved to that reservation that was set up for them in Oklahoma, they were considered to be the richest people in the world per capita at that time. And it was because it was a lot of oil on the reservation that they were moved to. Now, in this book, and I think they're making a movie about it now, but in this book, they they poisoned them got them drunk, said they died from alcohol poisoning. They was just shooting them and murdering them because of the amount of money that they were getting. 
And when that money came in, they had a bunch of um, uh, white male and females come in and be guardians because they considered them not to be wise enough or educated enough to handle the amount of money that they were receiving. And these guardians would would um, have children with them and kill them, you know, and so they can get the money. And it was a huge trial about it that brought it out. Um, I think you guys, I mean, if you really want reparations, I think that we should know what they're willing to do to us because um, I think far as they're concerned, having that amount of money um, is a direct threat to them. And um, and another book. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this book. It's um, They Were White and They Were Slaves by um, a white male named um, John Hoffman. And he pretty much documents what a slave is and how it worked in the court system or whatnot. And I think that's important because, according to this book, we technically don't fall under the definition of slave. Um, I think we fall more under prisoner of war from what I've, I've researched and seen. And I think that's a total, I think that's a, like a totally different mindset to where, you know, um, where slaves were released from captivity after seven to ten years with rights and liberties and all this stuff because they were working off of debt. A prisoner of war is not working off of debt. And I think that's kind of why, you know, they were able to keep us in captivity generation after generation after generation. I think that's pretty important for us to know, especially, you know, when they're giving people like Zimmerman a ride home after killing our children and taking, you know, taking Dylan Roof to to dinner after he killed the people in the church. That explains a lot. And, um, yeah, that's, that's it. Uh, thank you for letting me speak. Much obliged, Nick over the road. Words very important and being quiet, knowing when you don't need to use any of those words. Also, very important. I'd even say if you are confused, always err on the side of being quiet. You can always speak up later. Some exceptions. Uh, with that, we well, will real, real wrap this up. If you don't mind. Uh, we hit our three-hour mark, and I don't like all that interrupting. Okay. Uh, but we hit our three-hour mark. Is this something you can get in like ten seconds? Sure. Um, the Noah Webster eighteen twenty-eight dictionary. It's a two volumes. You could get it on archive.org. Um, just put in Noah Webster eighteen twenty-eight. Thank you. Much obliged. Thank you kindly. References are important. Go to the lot when you go to the library. Actually, if you go to the university library, check out their reference sections. They also they always will have really interesting materials. You can check out uh, kind of the history and changing of language over time. Anywho, uh, much obliged for everyone joining us. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday uh, evening. Uh, we will be back on Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, that said, hey, I can say it twice. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. 
Uh, we need to preserve our brain computers and correct thinking. Man, we will need lots of that to get this problem solved. Uh, if you're out and about, no confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking that they could Kyle Rittenhouse could be armed. In fact, they could have an entire armed entourage. Uh, if you did not leave your residence prepared to kill and or die, exit. You can call enforcement officers as you are leaving the vicinity. Uh, if you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled up, not on your cell phone. We need all of our attention and we're trying to do the small things that we can to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling no throwaway children no gossiping really easy things that we can do to move towards solving this problem immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim brother a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah.